ladies and gentlemen, recorded in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, it's time for Bite Night Picks with your host, Frank and Matt just like that, we're back with Fight Night Picks coming into 2023, leaving a busy 2022 in the rearview mirror. Looking forward to this weekend's card, UFC Fight Night Imovov versus Gastelum. And just like that, it's been a month away since UFC Fight Night. Cannoneer versus Strickland, and on Monday night, across the wire, 5.45 p.m. Eastern, Brett Okamoto throws a tweet out. That out is Kelvin Gastelum and in steps, you guessed it, Sean Strickland, the man that headlined just about a month ago. As always, one half your hosting duo, Craig Allen, Twitter and Instagram, Craig Allen FNP with me to my left, to your right, respective socials, Matt Allen FNP. Matt Allen, there's one YouTuber that talks about fights that does not like the fact that you wear gray toques, you're jacking his style and it hurts his feelings and his followers feelings. But Matt, I do say this, we did an entire video. On UFC Fight Night, Imovov versus Gaslam. Gaslam out due to the mouth injury. Now, all of a sudden, Sean Strickland's in, and our whole world is completely turned upside down. It's a weird, like, equation that the UFC must do. They try to get Darren Till in every matchup. When Darren Till can't do it, then they get Kelvin Gaslam. On the odd chance Kelvin Gaslam can't make it to fight night, guess who they call it? Sean Strickland. And it seems like it follows that exact same equation every single time. But I'll be honest, it's still a pretty similar fight to the first one that we did break down. We talked about Kelvin Gaslam and Sean Strickland as two of the better pure boxers in the division. So I think Imovov, it should be interesting. I think he will be able to take a lot of his original game plan and kind of shift it towards the new opponent. Well, Matt, we'll throw it on back to the original full card view. You'll get all of our thoughts, our intros, our outros on every single individual video. They're not going to make any sense to you, but just keep on keeping on, keep on tuning in and make sure you check out question mark kicks two hours before the prelims on Saturday. Really looking forward to breaking down this entire card. So many great prospects and fights that you should look out for. Let's get into it. As always, one half of your hosting duo, Craig Allen, Twitter and Instagram at Craig Allen FNP with me to my left, to your right respective socials at Raptors. You can just find him there. Toronto Raptors super like, fan. Yeah. It's Matt Allen, Matt Allen FNP. But realistically, Matt, we had a, a great break. We did an MMA nickname tier list. We had the review, the look back at 2022. Some big celebrations there. The state of MMA right now, it's kind of in the dumps. It is weird. But we're going to bring things back. Yeah. And we're going to punch it up for 2023. Kicking it off at the start of this year, number 12th ranked middleweight Nasruddin Imavov taking on the number 13th rank i mean a guy who's had fight of the nights and fight of the year contenders in kelvin gaslam it's gaslam's seventh main event with the ufc since he won the ultimate fighter all those years ago for imovov his first five round main event experience of his entire pro mma career 12 fight slate and i know there's a lot of fights here for the hardcore fans of MMA. Without a doubt, there's a lot of fights on this card that you can get excited for, and a lot of them find themselves buried deep on the prelims. I know I'm far too excited for Priscilla Cashwara versus Sajara Eubanks. That's a weird, fun fight at 125 that, okay, is the winner then going to go on and fight for a title? Probably not, but it's going to be fun while it lasts. And Jimmy Flick versus Charles Johnson, I think that's a really fun fight too. Everyone remembers how wild of a finish Jimmy Flick had his last time in the UFC octagon, and then... 
He retired, but he is back to take on Johnson, who has fought a very high level of opposition in his very short UFC tenure up until this point. So I think that's another very fun fight. And the two that I have mentioned are the two to open the card. So I think it just speaks to the depth that this whole card has. We're going to move right into it. And for 2023, we're going to have a lot more fun on the channel. We're going to leave it open to you. YouTube community tab at Fight Night Picks over on Instagram with all of the polls over there. Make sure you're keeping it connected. We're going to throw it on over to our fight of the night screen and listen throw down a comment below and let us know who you have in the fight of the night let us know down below in the comment section who you've got it's time for the fight of the night with fight night picks so these guys have had different nicknames throughout their overall careers and for damon jackson his last time out he's got two black lines on his spine and he's now action jackson not the leech anymore even though his family had the leech t-shirts printed did, out yeah. when they were watching him knock out pat sabatini for 50k danny gay Earned that nickname against Gavin Tucker four fights ago. He's lost three straight, but this fight has a lot of moves to make in terms of the featherweight rankings. I love this one. And it up. feels like it's a readjustment for both athletes because for Damon Jackson, his last time out, he beat a very hyped up prospect in Pat Sabatini. And after that, you feel like he is deserving of some kind of a big reward. And Dan Ige is that big reward because for Ige, he is trying to find his footing again after being that very promising young prospect at a certain point. So I think for Ige, this is a good justified step down down in competition for how he's looked against some of the killers he has fought recently. But Damon Jackson is no easy fight for anybody at any stage of his career. So like you said, this should be an incredible fight. Damon Jackson's first run in the UFC all those years ago was one bourbon, one scotch, one beer. It was, it was over before it was started and he ended up back with the UFC in 2020. Went over Mursad Betic 5-1 and one since he's come back. An absolute worm burner of a go if you're a golf fan. And Matt, the second pick, and this one's going to be off the page because I know everybody's excited about Barcelos taking on Nurmagomedov but I think one of the competitive fights that you're going to find on this card and it is a little bit of a head scratcher you have the snow leopard Javid Basharat taking on Mateus Mendonca and for both of these guys primary strikers they can grapple but they both have fan friendly type of styles exactly. and I could see a bonus kind of creeping up out of nowhere for this fight right here I couldn't agree more these are two athletes who probably don't have the fanfare that they deserve or just how skilled that they are but this is the fight that should change that if this does result in one of those fight of the nights where maybe we see like a third round TKO. It's a very memorable performance for both of them. That's going to improve their stock in the general MMA fans' eyes because that's the thing that I think we do forget. On cards like this where there's been this long break off for the UFC, there's going to be more eyes on a card being headlined by Kelvin Gaslam versus Nasruddin Imovov than you would probably assume. So I think this is a great opportunity for both these athletes to really gain a loss. Somebody's O has to go. A couple of promising guys in this Bantamweight division. 12 total fights. You're not wrong until Saturday night. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have in the fight of the night screen. We filmed this Saturday. It's a week before the fights and being a week out in terms of the rankings, you have Danny Ige ranked, Ketlin Vieira and Raquel Pennington as well as Umar Nurmagomedov. So only four ranked fighters on this card plenty of UFC debuts. You have Isaac Dolgarian, Mateus Mendonca, you have Mateusz Rambeski, Nick Fiore and Claudio Hibero. You also have the second time out for Jimmy Flick. Boy, has it been a while. Dan Argueta and Carlos Hernandez. So a lot of debuting fighters. A lot of fighters having their second time out. It's a fight night pick special type of card because there's not a lot of veteran experience that you're going to find that's featured on this one. It should be a really fun card. I'm very excited to break this down. I know we're excited from the first fight to the last fight. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have in these fights. Make sure you check out the individual breakout videos as they come out throughout the week. And also, you're going to find 
find us question mark kicks live two hours before the prelims on saturday we got a big time pack show for you you're gonna want to keep it locked in with fighting apex we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it. in a fight that was originally booked for july of 2021 we have sajar eubanks hailing out of the place that the Basketball Hall of Fame made famous, Springfield, Massachusetts, taking on zombie girl Priscilla Cachoeira, who had one of the worst, most toughest UFC debuts I think anybody's ever had in their entire life. Like, who was it? Joe Soto that fought TJ Dillashaw for a title? That might that have been wild. worse. Priscilla Cachoeira to me is like that Drake song. It really was me way back then. How about now? Like, Priscilla Cashmore has become a much better fighter, I think, than anybody would have assumed based on that UFC debut all those years ago. Because, let's be honest, she kind of got put into meme category. Like, everybody knew her just because that was the last fight Mario Yamasaki was ever doing in the UFC. No more hearts, exactly. Poor Mario. Anyways, he wasn't a great rap, especially by the end of it. But still, Priscilla wasn't really known for her fighting style or anything, really. She was just known for being on the receiving end of a very bad loss to one of the greatest fighters in women's uh, fighting history. But now this is a really fun fight because for her and Sajara Eubanks, they both occupy a very specific niche in this division. And it's, hey... We're two of the most physically strong fighters that there are out there, and that's whether they're competing at 125, 135. They both bring a very physical style into the cage, and they make you feel their presence. So just for that reason alone, I think this will be a fun fight. Will it be the most high-level, most technical striking affair? Probably not, but both of these ladies can throw bombs in there, and neither one of them is afraid to eat a shot to give their own shot. So I think it could result in a pretty fun fight. So, so Jerry Eubanks, if you watch her just in the UFC's broadcast, they're probably going to tell you that she's 8-7, and seven, not 7-7. Seven and seven. They like to fluff the numbers a little bit because... Because if you have a three-round fight on the Ultimate Fighter, boom goes the dynamite. It's on your record all of a sudden. And that is the fight that she had against Roxanne Modafferi on the Ultimate Fighter. Now, we all know the weight complication issues for Sajara Eubanks. She had issues against, well, Nico Montano. But that fight didn't actually exactly. happen for the title. She had issues against Roxanne Modafferi in the rematch that was actually in the UFC at UFC 230. She had weigh-in issues, as you can see on the screen in her last fight out, and that was a fight that she was favored to win, and she's been favored in all but two of her UFC matchups, and her last time out, she takes on Melissa Gatto, looks good in the first round, starts to tire as it goes on, and then the accumulation of the body strikes really did wear on her against Gatto, who... It's primarily known as a grappler, but Your all of a sudden showed better. up like a pretty darn good striker. But for you, Banks, very, very tough level of competition all the way through, whether it's a bantamweight, whether it's a flyweight. I mean, 0-2 on that line against Aspen Ladd. A really good fight with exactly. Invicta, a fight of the night in the UFC. But for you, Banks, if we just consider it in the five on in, it is two and three. A win over Julia Avila. She was actually the underdog in that matchup. She loses to Kathleen Vieira in a fight where... If I don't remember, uh, you know, I'd say, geez, that was a terrible fight. She came on strong in the third she round did. with her boxing. Who would have thought that that would have happened? Vieta up top on this card, your second-ranked Bantamweight right now. She loses to Penny Kanza. She beats Elise Reed on short notice, and then she loses to Melissa Gatto. For Cachoeira, 4-1 and one of the 5 on in. She looked terrible against Jillian Robertson. She arguably beat Gian Kim. She got her purple belt and didn't do any grappling in that one. That was one. odd. And then she beats Ariane Lipsky her last time out. That fight was pushed back a week. Lipsky, COVID issues the week before. She comes in. Lipsky has Amanda Nunes as her corner. Gets knocked out by one of the first punches thrown by Cachoeira as they brawl. Cachoeira, zombie girl. We know how good of a striker that she is. And for Eubanks, if we really focus it this way, Matt... 
Camp-wise, she's a Jerry Eubanks, Nick Cantone MMA forever. You look at the corners that she usually has. Sean Santella, Shorty Rock, you know him from the regional scene. Mark Henry as well. But for Priscilla Cachueta, she's bounced around. Came into the UFC at a PRVT. You see Jessica Andrade out of that gym, among others. Then she went to Team Figueredo. For this matchup, Matt, this is her first camp out of MMA Masters in South Florida with Daniel Valverde in the corner and Colby Covington out of that gym, among others. So power gyms represented in this fight as well. They certainly are. And this is the thing, though. I got to be completely honest. I don't think the gym changes are going to make a big enough difference to really change my opinion on this fight. Because the weird thing about Sajari Eubanks is this, and you bring it up. She has come on strong with her striking near the end of fights when she doesn't grapple a lot. Like, she is one of the fighters who her specialty gets her tired if she's not able to use it to damage. If she goes out there and uses a very heavy grappling approach. Remember the fight against Roxanne Montefiore? She looked good until she didn't because she was out wrestling her, out grappling her, looking really physically dominant on the mat, but once her cardio started to fade a little bit, we saw Roxanne was able to come back into that fight, especially in the end of the third round. So, for Eubanks, I think it is kind of a weird double-edged sword because for her to have a lot of success in this matchup, she is probably going to have to take down Priscilla quite a bit and hold her down, you would have to think, because on the feet, Priscilla is a dangerous fighter, but she's someone who can get held down on her back quite a bit. She's not going to threaten with submissions. She's really not even going to try to work her way back up to her feet, and I think that's really going to cost her in a matchup like this with Eubanks, because I've said this for a long time. People have gotten really caught up in the punching power of Sajari Eubanks, but her grappling is really good. Like, it is really good, and I think that the way that Priscilla uses her defense, I don't think Sajari is going to have to really work that hard in the top position. I think it is going to allow her to take some of those breaks if she does uh, really need them, especially well, in that second and third round. I think that could help her a lot. I mean, if you know Priscilla Cachueta, she's kind of like Lotto's big hit, but turn it light, and you can't curse on YouTube anymore, Matt, so shame on you at the start of this video, but she just brings it. She brings that big, big energy. That's Priscilla Cachueta, and for Eubanks, same thing can be said, I mean, in a in a pinch, I guess, because she is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt under Lloyd Irvin, and only one fight out of all of her UFC fights, and there's been 10 of them, that she hasn't gotten a takedown in is against Ketlin Vieira, where she came on strong without boxing. So we have a look at the topology votes, Matt, in this matchup between Eubanks, between Cachueta. Surprise to us there, to you. I'm going to say over under 65% Eubanks, who's actually on more of a skid compared to Cachueta. I think it's going to be under, but I think she'll be favored. I all think right, close. we have a look at the votes. Holy frick, 1,094 total votes, 80% Cachueta, 50% by decision, 40% by knockout. For the 20% that have Eubanks, 66% by decision. So Matt, the fans overwhelmingly have Cachueta in the matchup. Do you have Cachueta in the fight? Going into the video, I thought I would have Priscilla in the matchup just because of how good she has looked as of late. The fact that she can carry her power through divisions. And the thing about this fight is like... It's a bantamweight fight, but I don't necessarily look at these fighters as really like pure bantamweights. They're both sort of tweeners, and, so they're not really going yeah, to be continuing in this and, division. And for Cachoeira, the asterisk is on the screen. That fight that they kind of moved around. Lipsky had those exactly. issues. If I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, she was in hospital. So they moved it up to 135 to alleviate the weight cut. But this one is a flyweight, like you said. Uh... So yeah, my whole point is though, for Eubanks, I think if she can get that top position, I don't think she's going to have to work that hard once she's in that top position. And that's going to really come back to bite Priscilla, because on the feet, I think Priscilla can bomb on Sajara. I really do. I think she has good boxing. She has extremely heavy hands. We have seen this on multiple occasions now in the UFC. I just think her takedown defense is going to be such a liability in this matchup to where Eubanks is that one kind of opponent who could really take advantage of that hole in her game. To me, I, I do like the takedowns out of Eubanks, especially first round, second round. If it goes later into the second round, into the third third round Priscilla Cachueta holds the cards at that point but for Eubanks to have success 
against Gatto early to have the success she did against Julia Avila at 135 pounds, among others. I think that can carry Eubanks into a win here. Again, you do worry. She's 37. Weight cuts never get easy, and she missed weight her last time out. And it's been the story of her career, but in this matchup, both of us going with Sajara Eubanks to get the win. Some big fights on this card, including Dan Ige and Action Jackson in the co-main event. In the main event, and Nasruddin Nimovov taking on Kelvin Gaslam. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Coming up this weekend with the long-awaited return of Oklahoma's own The Brick, Jimmy Flick, throwing up the promo like he's Brian Bosworth in the 90s, and he's making his return against a former LFA flyweight champion in Charles Johnson and I should say fellow former LFA flyweight champion because both of these guys occupied that similar space over with that promotion and neither one of these guys surprisingly in their long pro careers have matched up against one another and that's what makes this matchup so much fun but for Jimmy Flick I mean he came into the UFC with so many triangle wins everybody knew him outside of the promotion for that one such fact but if you go and you watch this fight in his UFC debut against Cody Durden oh my gosh like I, we haven't seen that since UFC, what, 129? Pablo Garza throwing up the flying triangle? Don't act like you remember that. Not something that you do see all that often. That was a big GSP card, Matt. That was Jose Aldo, Mark Hominick. But if you do look at the matchup that we have coming up this weekend, both these guys, very, very similar in their styles with the one respect that they like to take the fight down to the mat and they have a lot of their success once it finds itself there. Without a doubt, my big concern though in this matchup, and I think why the odds are reflected where they are is... This is a really difficult fight for Jimmy Flick to be taking, making his, I guess, return to the UFC after a lengthy retirement, because that's what it was for Jimmy Flick. It's not like he had, you know, just taken time off and couldn't get matchups. Like, MMA was out of his life. He had, like, it wasn't really a press conference, but he had made an announcement in the LFA ring, I believe. it was. No, it was, it, so it was actually the SCF ring so, back in Oklahoma there, in 2021. So, so, yeah, he had announced his retirement there, and I completely thought, okay, that's it for Jimmy Flick. He's going to be one of those weird MMA what-ifs, and it'll be like, hey, remember that well, time he flying triangled Cody Durden? The craziest part about it was the quotable. He said, there's no benefits of beating up my body uh, up no more in the UFC. We have no 401k. We have no benefits. We have no fallback. Fighters are too stupid to unionize, and it'll never happen because there's a lot of other fighters that will fight for that money. So there he you seemed go. like he had not just one foot out the door. Like he had jumped out a couple of days ago, and, and people didn't realize he was gone. And now he's back. And that might be a good sign. Like, maybe he has been able to revitalize himself. Maybe the time away from the sport has made him realize how much he misses it. Maybe it's making him train even harder as a result. I just think making your return against Charles Johnson can be really difficult. And I know people might be down on Johnson. He had a close fight to Jalgashi Magulov his last time out. He got mopped by Makayev his first time. Let's just call it what it was. That was not a competitive fight whatsoever. But if we're giving Makayev the respect he deserves, and I think we have to, he might be the best prospect we've seen in this division in years. And I, I'm, that's not hyperbole either. Like, Makayev's grappling is so dominant that once he gets it down to the mat, he's going to be able to out-wrestle a lot of guys in this division. So I don't really think we have seen the best version of Charles Johnson. So maybe it's difficult for me to sit here and really sell you a package on him to where, hey, he's going to go out there and not only out-wrestle Jimmy Flick, but beat him up on the feet, use some of his volume, use some of his footwork. I, I just, I keep on going back to Flick and worrying about that time off and worrying about that word retirement. I just never think it's a great sign when a guy's making his return all of a sudden. Well, and there's two ways to look at this, because originally this was supposed to be Jeff Molina to take on Jimmy Flick, and on December the 5th, it was announced by Mike Hack that Charles Johnson would be taking the fight. 
That's a week after Charles Johnson fought Jalgajuma Gulab that he's thrown into another camp to take this one. So again, you get to be fresh. Now his last time out, split decision win over Jalgajuma Gulab. Majority of people thought that Jalgas ended up winning that fight. MMA decisions 12 to 1 for Juma Gulab over Johnson, but we know Jalgas. Now he gets it was a close fight. It's he, not like Jalgas ran over him. No, he, he, he retired after. Majority of people though thinking that Juma Gulab won. But if you do look at it for Charles Johnson, everything that's going to be said around the fact that he was a two-time national steeple chase champion and he was an AAU national track and field athlete with the University of Arkansas Pine Bluff as well as Southeastern Missouri State but when you watch Charles Johnson and we talk all about his LFA career and how good he is with his cardio and his five round cardio and he turns it on rounds three four and five the trouble that Charles Johnson has in a lot of his fights against Shumagulov against Moda against some of these other guys Brandon Royval is another example he struggles to get it going in round number one and he can really get behind on the strikes and one thing that Johnson will do is the fact that he had a pro boxing career from 2017 to 2019. He went 1-5-4 and four, and he did win a 2019 Tiger Muay Thai scholarship to go over and train at the gym. If you watch the way that Charles Johnson fights, it's kind of odd because they might bill him as a boxer and he does shell up like a boxer and he does fight in a boxing stance to where you can get Point, you can get scored on points for defense and boxing, but the way that Johnson shells up and waits and waits and waits and doesn't tend to counter, he gets himself behind on some of the MMA scorecards. Now, against a guy like Jimmy Flick, Who that might not fought, yeah, in years. That, that might not be the case because Flick, again, he hasn't fought in a very, very meaningful amount of time. And if we do switch it back to Flick and you look at it, 14 of his 16 wins are by submission. Eight of them are by triangle. And he is a specialist once he gets it down to the mat. And he has fought some big names. I know Ray Rodriguez was one. Levi Mowles on the regional scene. Guys like Sean O'Grady and Adan De La Garza. Those are guys that nobody really knows unless you're fan friends or family. But if you do focus on it for Flick unorthodox striking mixes in that great submission ability and i know a lot of people like that in uh flying triangle that patty pimblett had over with cage warriors one. it's a big one but it's not a submission that you see very often but flick is so adept with his submissions that for charles johnson we talk about the cardio we talk about the boxing the striking johnson's biggest strength is getting his opponents down to the mat getting them to turn over and then landing really really vicious ground and pound when he can get his own back mount and he is an expert at getting back mount in some of these fights he is he's the more damaging fighter of the once it gets to the mat. With Flick, it is much more submission over everything. It's not to say he has poor ground and pound. It's just not what he's looking for when he's on the mat. I think if Johnson does get Flick down, Flick might be threatening with submissions. He'll be an active grappler off of his back, but I think he is going to be eating damage from that top position from Johnson. Again, Flick might go on to be the flyweight champion. I can't pick him, though, in his first fight back coming off retirement at the age of 32. It's one of those fights where I might get this one wrong, and I can openly admit that, just to have a better idea as to what Jimmy Flick's going to look like in the future, because he was such a talented fighter the last time we saw him. He won in about the craziest possible way you can in an MMA cage. There was a lot of potential there. I, I just don't really like the opponent he's coming back to, with all the kind of what-ifs there's been left around Jimmy Flick the last two years. Yeah, and I mean, for Charles Johnson, much has been noted about the fact that the betting line completely switched throughout this, and with fighting picks we're not going to focus on that as much in 2023 but if we do look at the topology votes matt surprise to us they are to you and i'm going to say this before you have a look at them i'm on the fence about the pick to be completely honest with everybody because the strengths that charles johnson's possesses on the mat jimmy flick can nullify a lot of those so i'm going to say over under 70 percent johnson I, you know what? I'm going to say over under 80% Charles Johnson just because of that recency factor. Uh, I was going to say over 70. I'll say under 80. I'm going to say under 80. 
1245 total votes on Tapology, 51% flick, 66% by submission. For the 49% that have Johnson, it's about 61% by decision. So the fans have Jimmy Flick by 1%, and I'm on the fence. So, yeah, that, I, I do have a hard time. You already tipped your hand, though. You're going with Charles Johnson. I, I just, there's a boxer named Mikey Garcia, and he was awesome years ago, and then he took a really long time off because he had all these weird promotional mishaps, if you will, and it just cost him a lot of his prime. Then he came back and fought Earl Spence Jr., and a lot of people got excited for it. You know what happened in that fight? Earl Spence Jr. beat the brakes off him. And I know that this is a very different level of that, but still, Charles Johnson has at least been active and competing, and he does have good volume. I know you bring up the Jean Gas fight, both of those guys landed over 100 strikes in that matchup. So for Johnson, I do uh, share some of those same concerns that you have about the slow starts, but I don't think Flick's the guy who's really going to go out there burning super hot after all this time Charles off. Johnson makes a major mistake in all of his fights when he goes for his takedowns, whether it's double or single leg. He leaves his neck completely out to the, I guess it'd be the right-hand side of every opponent. Jiminy, Jimmy Flick, you want to call it's him... It's so Jim difficult not to do that every time, you, I know. You want to call him Jiminy Glick and start doing the Kiefer, Kiefer, but we won't do that here. Jimmy Flick and definitely submit him. I have Charles Johnson ever so slightly, but my goodness, I think Jimmy Flick has a great opportunity in this fight. So both of us going with Johnson, but my goodness, if I've ever seen a pop popcorn fight, this is definitely and it. And hopefully we just get one of those fun scramble matchups where we just get to learn more about both these guys. Because for Johnson, it has been a really tough run the last two fights. And for Flick, it has been a long time off. So just for both these guys, I don't think this is a loser kind of leaves town deal. Hopefully both guys get another opportunity because they're both very talented fighters. Couple of guys looking for their second win under the US UFC banner. It should be a great one in the ever-changing flyweight division. Some great fights on this card, including a middleweight headliner between Nasruddin Imavov and Kelvin Gaslam. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. And a welcome to the UFC. It's the rookie debut of the Midwest Choppa, Isaac Dalgarian, the former FAC champion, taking on Daniel the Determined Argetta. Matt, it's a weak nickname. It's a good nickname. And I gotta be honest, can, I think they're both kind of weak. I don't know. The Midwest Choppa is not that bad. But for Isaac Dalgarian, if you do look at it throughout his overall tenure, both as a pro and as an amateur, he's putting a very, very slick and sneaky record out there. And he is undefeated. 4-0 as an amateur, 5-0 as a pro. All of these fights with KC Fighting Alliance and FAC, you're going to know that promotion for sure. And he's also competed for the majority of his career out of Glory MMA and Fitness Now. Throw it out there, the tweet from uh, Alex Bahunin. And if you do look at it, there's a lot of guys that have been training at a Glory MMA and Fitness, but for reasons that we've all seen out exactly. there on the Twitter sphere, they're all training out of Factory X Muay Thai. So an interesting mix there for Delgarian. But coming into this matchup, Matt, what a lot of people might not realize is... Although this is Isaac Dalgarian's UFC debut, and for Dan Argetta, the more well-known fighter, he's had Greg Jackson in his corner for most of his career, and he's also kind of like a Cub Swanson protege, but also mouthpiece, because he speaks for him at the press conferences. For these guys, they're the same fighter. And if you don't believe me, let's go into a little bit of a deep dive. For Isaac Dalgarian... He is a 2012 Freestyle National, or not champion, but participant. You can find him on Flow Wrestling there. He also spent time at Notre Dame College, and he kind of bounced around with his collegiate and university wrestling career. For Dan Argetta, he competed with the Wisconsin Parkside Rangers from 2012 to 2016, and he was team captain with that uh, at 149 and 157 pounds. And just to kind of compound that, everybody, they both fight the exact same way. This is my question, and please correct me if you think I'm completely off base. Is Daniel Argetta not quite a bit bigger? 
Like, in my mind, when they face off, I think this is going to be one of those is Jairzinho really 6-3 deals. Because it does have them both listed at 5-7, but at least in my mind's eye, and I've been wrong before saying this, so I'm sure I'm going to be wrong again. I do feel like Argetta is the bigger athlete between these two guys. And to speak to what you had said, if they do end up fighting in a similar manner... It could help him with some of those earlier wrestling exchanges, but it could also cost him well, later on if he does find himself burning a lot. But the one thing I do like out of Dalgarian, I will say, yes, he does have good wrestling. I do like the way he can hide some of his strikes with his wrestling. And what I do like about him is he'll square up sometimes on the feet, but it doesn't seem unintentional. It's not like, a, oh, I'm getting overexcited and that's why I'm doing this. It's just a good level of footwork for a guy who's only his age. And that's the thing. He's, what, 5-0 and oh at 26 years old? Like, I genuinely believe Dalgarian's going to have a decent UFC career where we could see him get better from time into time and, out because he does have a good foundational skill set. And is he a Nelk Boys athlete? Do we know that at all? Why? Because he was on Dana White's looking for a fight his last time out. He beats TJ Britton. He wins the belt over there, the featherweight strap. And if you do look at it, that was supposed to be the card that Nelk was going to sign a fighter. And then Delgarian did an interview with Nelk with OG Shawnee Mack getting slapped by Nate Diaz. And it, it, it's not really clear. So I don't know if he's a Nelk Boys guy or not. But regardless out of that for Delgarian... Not a good level of competition at no. all. Uh, 12 and 8 is a combined opponent record as a pro. And Britain was 7 and 2. So you can kind of do your little subtraction there. You can see that it's not all that good. And even then, Britain was 39 years old in the matchup. Now, all of his wins are by first round finish. And if you do look at it, I wrote down fast, powerful grappling. And he is the type of guy that he's going to get into mount very, very quickly. And then you make your mistake. You either get grounded, pounded out, or you give your back and he submits you. Isaac Dalgarian... For what it's worth, bad level competition, beating guys the way that you should, but exactly. the way that Delgarian fights, and you're going to find it, Nick Fiore's very, very similar that we're going to see on this card. They cinch things up very, very quickly on the ground. I like the fighter that Delgarian is. When I match both of these guys up, for Argetta, my comp is Cody Stamen because he wrestles and then he keeps you down. And he chains together his takedowns. Where I disagree a little bit on the size thing is Argetta spent most of his career at Bantamweight. He was on the Ultimate I Fighter. Feels like he's really grown into it. Again, I could be he, wrong. He was but. on the Ultimate Fighter Season 29 at Bantamweight. Had a very competitive fight against Ricky Tertius. You could have given round one and round two to Argetta. They gave one round to Tertios, one round to Argetta, three rounds, sudden death. And then it was Tertios that won the third round. But a really, really good fight there. But for Argetta, he continued to win. Takes a short notice fight on, what, a week and a half's Just notice. Just a good fighter. Against Damon Jackson, who's in the co-main of this. And put on an interesting performance. He took care of himself. He had his back taken for all of the fight. But those back punches, they blew up uh, exactly. Jackson's eye. He did better than Pat Sabatini, so we'll give him credit where it's due. But for Argetta, a known commodity for Dalgarian UFC debut, maybe not as many people do know him. But to me, when I look at this one, Matt, my last thing, I said, Argetta's a little bit more Aaron Pico than Ben Askren in this fight, whereas I think Dalgarian, it's to get the fight down to the mat. He's a little bit less happy with his hands, where Argetta, I've seen him in his fights go out there and box guys. Oh, without a doubt. And I do think Argetta is going to have that kind of an edge on the feet. I still think that if Argetta gets Dalgarian to the mat, though, he can just lay on top of him. And I know that's not going to make for the most aesthetically pleasing fight, but it might be a position where you're avoiding all the big shots on the feet. You don't really have to worry about the wrestling takedown coming back your way. And what's the one rule we learn every single time a wrestler gets taken down and gets flat on their back? 
they're not that great at getting back up. It's just not a component of their sport. So I do think that if Argetta, like you said, can have success on the feet, I do think he can have success on the mat too. And that's really going to be the big question mark because if Argetta's going out there and looking like the boxer that he can be, but still getting taken down for two, maybe three minutes for every single round, it's going to be a really difficult fight to judge by the end of it. But I do like Argetta's ability to at least just go out there and get consistent damage and then maybe even sprinkle in the takedown every now and then. Dalgarian making the OC debut the second time out for Dan Argetta. We have a look at the topology vote. Surprise to us, they are to you. I'm going to say over under 72.5% Argetta. I'll say over. I'm going to say over. And it's just over. 1,221 total votes. 81% Argetta. 79% by decision for the 19% that have Dalgarian. 50% by decision. 29% by knockout. I think both these guys have very, very interesting styles. And I think they're going to be around for a while. It's not going to be a one and done, two and done. I, I think they're going to have decent careers. And for Dalgarian at just 5-0, and oh, I don't think it's too early based on that skill set that he has. He can take guys down. He can threaten with a lot of different things, whether it's submission, whether it's by knockout. I do like our get in the matchup. I know we kind of set it up a little bit that way, but I really do like the grappling, the mix of the boxing, but this is the biggest factor for this fight. Argetta can slow down in the third round and get really happy with his hands. Kind of like Sajara Eubanks is also in this card. Too yeah. much wrestling, now I'm a striker. For Dalgarian... Ramzan Abib's the poster boy for that fighter. I've never seen that out of Dalgarian because fights are over so very quickly. So I can't wait to get a great sample size out of both these fighters. I think we're going to learn a lot about both of them. But I do like Argetta in the matchup. I agree. 145 is a tremendous weight class. Like, guys who are making their debuts would be like ranked fighters and heavyweight, just skill for skill. So I think it should be really fun fight, but I do like Daniel Argetta in this one. Both of us going with Cub Swanson, man. It is the determined Dan Argetta. All the crazy things I did tonight. Those would be the best memories. Hey, hey, Argetta. Uh, it should be a great fight. We have a lot of really good ones on this card. We already mentioned it. Damon Jackson, Action Jackson taking on 50k Ige in the co-main event. Imovov taking on Gaslam in the main event. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. it. Couple of big time gyms from 2022 going at it. We have Shoot the Box, Diego Lima's own, Puro Oso, Alan Nascimento, taking on Valley Flow Striking Systems own. Carlos Hernandez, former regional champion, is Hernandez, and he just continues to put on a winning role, a split decision win on Dana White's contender series over a big-time Spanish prospect in Bares, and then a big-time win in the OC by split decision over one Victor Altamirano, a guy who got it done over with the LFA. Yeah. And for Hernandez, one of the things that I really do appreciate out of his fighting style is the fact that he can really close distance well. He really puts it on a lot of his opponents, and if he does doesn't win the first round of his fight. Boy, does this guy not get discouraged? Because that's what happened in the fight against Barres and in the fight that he had against Altamirano. Really able to rally in those fights. Big second round, big third round. And against a guy like Alain Nascimento, that could prove out to be a, a good skill to have. Because for Nascimento, you might remember him out of his like fight of the year that he had on Dana White's Contender Series Brazil back in 2018 against Howley and Paiva. Since then, kind of some weird results. I mean, he loses USC debut to Tagir Ulanbeka by split decision. Really close fight, but his last time out as an underdog against Jake Hadley's where Nascimento really kind of put himself out there. Now, was it the most fun fight to go back and watch? Not, Not really. necessarily, but Nascimento beat Hadley at his own game. So for Nascimento, another great opportunity in this matchup against Hernandez. But Matt, I know I said this the last time out, and I'm going to say it in every single Ulan Nascimento fight. I think he's the biggest flyweight I've ever oh, yeah. seen in my entire life. It's insane how big this man is. I, I don't know how he does it. I mean, he matches up with Charles Oliveira. He looks like he's bigger than Thomas Almeida. He's definitely bigger than Willie Cat Daniel Santos oh, yeah. over there with Shoot the Box. But 
a really, really good strength to schedule, a really, really good uh, kind of level of training partner that Nascimento has. And same thing for Hernandez. I mean, I set it up that way for a reason. Juliana Pena's fought out of VF VFS. Bilal Muhammad as well. Ignacio Bahamandes. There's a lot of really good fighters out of that gym. Without a doubt. And the thing that I really like about Alain Nascimento, though, and it's uh, it's a positive and a negative. He's in a pool that probably has a thousand fighters right now, and it's, hey, if he just put it all together, think about the fighter that he could become. Because on the feet, he does have snappy boxing. He is a damn fighter, I would say, on the feet. He can definitely threaten with his own submissions, and like you mentioned, his wrestling is something that you never really think of, or at least I don't at the forefront of his game. I think of a little bit more as a guy who is going to damage you, force some of the grappling out of you, and then take advantage of it, but when Nascimento's firing at all steam ahead, he is a very difficult fighter to deal with. But for Hernandez, I like how you mentioned it, though. Hernandez is going to have to go through a storm in this fight, and it's going to be a difficult one, especially early on, but like you said, he is not a fighter who gets discouraged. If anything, he does grow as the fight continues, so I think this fight, I know it wasn't on our fight of the night screen, but this is one of those fights that could be real dirty, real grimy, in like the second round where both guys are getting hurt. I just think this is a tremendously high-skilled match of 125. Well, and they have really interesting backgrounds. Carlos Hernandez very much is more boxing heavy than it is kick heavy. For Alain Nascimento, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, but also he is a Muay Thai specialist and if you do watch him fight he fought way back in 2013 for the legacy fc bantamweight wow, strap and he wasn't successful there but it's just an interesting mix because for nascimento kind of liken him to a guy like a brian kelleher kelleher can threaten on the feet he's not necessarily all that worried in exchanges to get taken down because that can threaten or open up the threat of his scrambles and then his submission abilities nascimento is one of those fighters but he can strike from distance for hernandez he will threaten with the takedown in a lot of his fights, but this might be the one where it could get him caught. He might want to just kind of keep it on the feet. And Hernandez does one thing very, very well. Doesn't necessarily crowd the fighter all that all that much, but what he does is he has really, really good foot placement when he's trying to kind of so, cut the cage. And this is what I was going to bring up. I think he has to crowd Nascimento, honestly. Nascimento's too big and too skilled on the outside with his own kicks, and Nascimento's a unique fighter. Uh, there are fighters who are good examples of this. Think about Brian Ortega. Brian Ortega has really long arms. He's a big fighter for his division. Has great boxing too. So what do guys figure out? If I get on the inside of his reach and use dirty boxing, use the clinch work, he doesn't really have an answer to that range. Nascimento is cut from that same cloth. We have seen him struggle to deal with those pressure fighters on the inside because his damaging range is so uh, so much at distance to where if you do make it ugly, I think you can start to get to a lot Nascimento if he doesn't ever find a way to incorporate. Like when Cowboy Cerrone fought Eddie Alvarez, he just kept on throwing a knee to the body up the middle every time Eddie Alvarez would move forward. I think Nascimento needs to incorporate one of those kind of attacks into his game. Just something that could threaten guys from not just pressuring him constantly. Before we do look at the topology votes, you might also think, well, Nascimento 19-6 and is a pro. Hernandez 8-1. A little bit of a mismatch skill-wise that way. But for Hernandez, you can't forget 2014 IMMAF tournament champion like for the world not just for like his state so that is a big thing and he also has wins over charles johnson who's also on this card and jose johnson who's now in the ufc as an amateur and fernandez the only loss is to a big time one championship fighter and gustavo Baylart, former cuban pan-american gold medalist wrestler so hernandez has a really really good level of competition it just might not show you got to kind of go through the weeds to look at that so if we do look over on topology for the votes on this one surprise to us they are to you i'm gonna say over under 70 percent nascimento i'll say over i think it'll be a big favorite
slightly over 1272 total votes 79 percent nascimento 71 percent by decision 22 percent by submission for the 21 percent that have hernandez 71 percent by decision and i could see this fight going to a decision because i think both fighters are very cerebral and for carlos hernandez sometimes it takes him that first round to really get into the fight but the thing that i love about hernandez is if you go to his instagram Majority of his pictures are him cornering a lot of the other fighters that are VFS. Very involved in the sport. And I love that. Michael Johnson's somebody that's always done that. Michael Chiesa's somebody else who's always done that. For Carlos Hernandez, cut from that same cloth is the former HFC champ. Matt, what's your pick in this fight? I hope we've given Hernandez the flowers that he deserves because I do think this is a very difficult fight for a lot Nascimento, but I still find myself picking Nascimento in the matchup. Again, I like him at that long range with his own striking. I think that if Hernandez does get tired, and I know that would be a little bit uncharacteristic for him, but the way that he's going to have to strike again is going to be very close range. The takedown's probably going to be available to him, and if he does start to tire in that second or third round after there has been kind of a firefight on the feet, I think that's when Nascimento could take advantage, start to use his own grappling, maybe threaten with submission here or there. So I you have Nascimento, but I think this could be a really fun fight. I have no idea how Alain Nascimento makes weight. I have no idea it's how insane. he makes flyweight. Magic? Like he's, he's giant, and he doesn't look the best on the scales, so it always kind of leaves you cause for concern when we do the show on Saturday. I do like Nascimento with the stance switches with that Muay Thai that he possesses in a matchup like this. For the same reason that I kind of like Victor Altamirano's kicking ability in his fight against Hernandez, and Hernandez was able to get the win in that matchup. So both of us in this one... Going with the Swiss Army Knife, Alain Nascimento to shoot the box, Diego Lima to get the win. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have, because I think this is a really under-the-radar, oh, fun yeah. type of matchup. We have so many good ones on this card. Headline by Imovov versus Gaslam. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's get into it. Bantamweight fight coming up this weekend that hits like H2O, a dandelion sand, and a toupee. Papa. What are we doing here? Matt, we have a fight coming up between the Snow Leopard, Javid Bashra, taking on Mateus Mendonça out of Brazil, representing Shoot the Box Diego Lima. He's got a teammate competing before him in Alain Nascimento. He himself making his UFC debut is Mendonça. Undefeated records on the go. Somebody's O has to go. And for Bashara, this is a guy coming into the OC I wasn't completely sold on. Because if you look at it at the time, he was, what, 11-0. and 0. He had just beaten Oron Kalon over on Dana White's Contender Series in 2021. A guy who completely missed weight. Like, not even close. And said a lot of dirty things before the fight. And Bashara looked great. Finishes him in the third round. Comes in, take on Trevin Jones. Did we pick him to beat Trevin Jones? No, we didn't. And he looked amazing in that fight. And then he goes in and takes on Tony Gravely. Did we pick him to beat Tony Gravely? I think I did. You did. I didn't. But in that matchup, he looked really good against a former Division I wrestler out of Appalachian State. And he defended... All of the takedowns. I Like, I didn't think that was going to happen in that fight. That's what I was really wanted to bring up in this video. Javid Bashra reminds me a little bit of a guy like Jack De La Maddalena at 170. When you look at Maddalena, yes, he's a very hyped up prospect, but I said this during the video and I've said it ever since. When he beat Ramazan Amid, that proves that you're a little bit more than just a regular prospect. Amid might not get the glitz and glamour as being this, you know, prospect beater by any means, but it's a really difficult fighter to make look bad. And for Tony Gravely, I kind of look at him as a similar level of opponent, if you will. Not saying they're perfect 
perfect matches, but you get the idea. If you beat Gravely by defending his takedowns, hitting him on the feet, avoiding the big shots, well, those are showing us kind of the foundation and the building blocks to becoming a really talented fighter and to start fighting some of those ranked fighters. Because at Bantamweight, there seems to be a pretty big step between unranked fighters and ranked fighters. We've talked about the flyweight division a lot. Unfortunately, the flyweight division doesn't really have the level of depth that Bantamweight has right it's, now. It's getting there. It, it really is getting there. Bantamweight's probably the best division in the UFC right now, though. It's either Bantamweight or Lightweight, it, maybe Featherweight. One of those three, I would say. But right now at 135, there's a lot of great fighters. And I do think Bashrat is on his way to the rankings. But even in a division like this, we bring it up with Lightweight, you're going to win, what, five, six, seven fights in a row? Yeah, and you it, better look damn good it, in each one of those. If you look at it for Bashrat, the thing that really scared me was, yeah, okay, you, you've been able to take guys down in the regional scene. So he had all of those fights was seven different promotions before he fought on Dana White's Contender Series. And the level of competition that he took on was 45 and 59 out of those fights. So it's not good at all. Comes into the UFC, beats Trevin Jones, who's wishy-washy. He was really wishy-washy in the UFC. But against Tony Gravely, defended 11 of 13 takedown attempts. And by the end of it, he was really punishing him. So that's a win that definitely holds a lot of water. And the big thing for Javid, and I think, I don't know if it's a, a something switched, but... He, for the longest time, trained out of London shoot fighters. And you've had, like, Michael Venom Page out of that gym at points in his career. But for Bashra in the UFC in these two fights, camps out of extreme couture. And I think that's really helped him kind of round things out. And take out a guy like Mateus Mendonca, and we'll definitely give him his flowers as we go along. This guy is a wild card when it comes to his fights on the feet. And when you do watch him, he might just be billed as a striker. He's got all these finished wins. And you, we'll talk a little bit about his MMA fighting article that was written about him in 2020 by Guillermo Cruz. Because somebody was picking on his brother at Jiu-Jitsu Gym. And Mateus Mendonca went in with a scalpel and thought he was going to try and make things happen. And then he got involved in MMA. And right now, I mean... 10-0, he beat Pedro Nobre, who was in the UFC for one fight, illegal strike. See you later, Pedro. But if you do look at it, he was 21 when he fought Nobre. And in that fight, a little bit of back and forth, he's able to drop Nobre as it goes on. But the things that I've learned out of Mendonca as a fighter out of Shoot the Box Diego Lima, yes, he's a striker. But he doesn't really strike like high and tight like a lot of Muay Thai fighters. He strikes a lot more like Alex Oliveira. Limbs everywhere, yeah. throwing wild. And then when Mendonca decides he wants to grapple, it's not really technical grappling. It's powering all his strength into his takedowns. And then once Mendonca starts to get tired, he will kind of force himself into some of the grappling. The long-range takedown attempts and they can get stuffed. And Bostrad has pretty good defensive submissions. We haven't really brought that up, but he does. He's got a really good guillotine. He can threaten off his back quite a bit. He's got good takedown defense. He's got his own wrestling. I just think for Mendonca, this is a really difficult matchup for him. Because like you said, he's a fighter who relies a lot on not only his athleticism, but just the unorthodox style that he does possess into the cage. Being really unorthodox does help you sometimes. You know when it rarely helps you? Fighting a really good technician. And that's what I look at when I see Javid Basharat. He can fight on the back foot. He can fight moving forwards. And he doesn't waste a lot of punches. And I think that's the important thing in this fight. If he was a guy who was a real busy fighter, went out there, and would miss some shots to then land his own power shots, then maybe Mendonca would be able to duck a jab, land his own counters, and maybe make something big happen. But the way that Basharat's able to stand on the back foot, I think he's going to be able to avoid some of those bigger shots. Well, and if you do look out of four Mendonca, he fought seven times in 2019 he beat the titan fc champ but with another promotion but the guy was still the titan champ in hudson Calio Kane, and he looked great in that future FC fight if you go back and you watch it. But for Mendonca, the trouble that I had going back and watching a lot of the tape was he's got a really, really great right hand. He throws from really odd angles with a lot of his strikes. He's got a prodding front kick that then he can change the angle and throw it as a teep. And he can really threaten to all three levels. But he leaves his head on the center line. And when you hit him, he can get hit 
and then he brings his hands up when you're landing your second punch. Like, he leaves his hands down by his chest in a lot of his exchanges. So, not a lot of technique in his striking defense. However, he's only 23 years old. Oh, he's going to get he way is, better. He is going to get better. And like a teammate that he has in Daniel Willicat, a guy who I thought... Willicat was different in the fact that he was just super wild. And I didn't know if he could bring it together in the UFC. All of a sudden, his last time out, he gets beaten up bad in the first round. And then he looks great right in the second round against uh, a really good fighter in Sexy Mexi, John Castaneda. So we have a look at this one in terms of the topology votes, Matt. Surprise to us there to you. I'm going to assume a guy who's won two fights in the UFC taking on a debuting fighter is going to be favored by the fans. I would say. So I'm going to say over under 82.5% Basharat. I think it'll be in the 90s. I'll say over. It is 90. 1,255 total votes, 90% Boshrat, 71% by decision. For the 10% that have Mendonca, 36% by decision, 45% by knockout. So the fans favor Boshrat. I mean, I, I think we gave both guys some some pointers in this fight. There's things to look out for. And we even consider this as a possible fight. Oh, because yeah. Mendonca, win or lose, and he's never lost as a pro, is going to go out on a shield. And I think he only knows one way, go. So... I don't have Mendonca in the fight, but I think it's going to be a fun fight. I think he's going to make a good account of himself. Like you said, he doesn't know how to quit. He's going to march forward, try to land his own shots. Just think he's fighting a guy who is very difficult to hit, can land his own counter shots. The weird thing about Boshrod, too, is he's got this weird karate stance where he stands far away and leaves his head out, but he's also really good at wrestling when he decides to go forward. So it's a weird kind of pace change because you're on the outside expecting kicks and all of a sudden he's in on your hips. So I like Boshrod in this fight. Muay Thai and boxing for Mendonca and that varied approach from Javid Boshrod trying to make his brother proud. Old Farid, a couple of guys in the UFC, Matt, both of us going with the Snow Leopard to get the win for Extreme Katori with some great fights on this card main event Nasruddin Imavov ranked 12th in the middleweight division taking on the 13th rank Kelvin Gaslam it should be a great time keep it locked in with fight night picks we always say let's get into it couple of UFC debuts coming up this weekend this is a fight night pick special and if you know us well you know that we're gonna go down and dirty with the matchup at lightweight ahead of you we have Poland's Mateusz Rambeski taking on New England cartel's own Nick Fiore and Matt when I look at Nick Fiore this guy is a really really interesting prospect yeah. he gets this fight on incredibly short notice now it was announced not that long ago on December 29th that he would be replacing Omar Morales a guy who we featured heavily in our MMA nicknames video, the Venezuelan fighter, that Fiori uh, would be getting this opportunity. And first of all, I thought, is it pronounced Fiori or is it like Canada's Colin Fior? Like, is it, how do you, you go. is it Manoff Fioro? How do we pronounce this guy's name? And then I thought back to, okay, put myself in 2022 shoes. Did you watch Midnight Mass? You're taking a drink of water? You didn't watch, not, no. you didn't watch Midnight Mass. So I need to hear it from the fans out there. Did you watch it on Netflix? Because like Colm Fior, I thought uh, Storm of the Century and Midnight Mass were the same thing. It was the exact same thing if you've seen all of those. For Nick Fiore, though, he is not at all Omar Morales, Venezuelan fighter. Fiore is very much a Henzo Gracie black belt. He used to train out of Henzo Gracie's in New Hampshire. And if you've ever seen a Fiore fight... It's the fact that he's going to go against his opponent, do a little bit of the striking, take you down with a double leg, get you to give your back, get you to make a mistake, and he's going to finish you. And all of Fury's wins are by finish. And Mateusz Rombeski is cut from the same cloth. But for Fury, this is the big difference in this fight. Combined opponent's record in his six pro fights, 61 and 234. And you might go, how does that even happen? Well, he fought JLS twice. 
and he beat him twice by finish. And for Fury, all of his fights are with Combat Zone except for one. How fast did he sign that contract the second time? Well, very, very quickly. Now, one Ellis fight was with CS, and one was with Combat Zone. You might be going with Craig. could even get Ellis out of their name, he had his... I mean, you know, Northeastern MMA is kind of in a weird spot, and I would agree with you. It definitely is, and Combat Zone is Fury's teammate's promotion. It's Calvin Cater's promotion. So is, yeah. a lot of push for Nick Fury into the UFC. His last fight was at welterweight, and he took on a very, very bad fighter in 5-19 and 19 Stengel. He wins that fight by submission. Again, pitter-patter, takes him down, submits him, it's over. But if you do look at it for Fury, poor level competition as a pro, reel it back in just a little bit and don't just focus on those numbers because the last two wins that he has as an amateur over the anabolic Arabian Ali Zebian, a very, very good fighter that I think you're going to see in Bellator or the UFC in the not-so-distant future. And Nate Garib as well, he beat him. And those are two really big names to beat on the regional scene. Now, is Joe Selecki a good comp for Nick Fiore? I think he is, and I, people are going to be down on Nick Fury, and truth be told, I'll let the cat out of the bag right now. He's not. I don't think he's going to win this fight at all. Oh, I, we're in the same boat. However, I do like Nick Fury, and I do think he would be deserving of a shot in the UFC, but this is one of those tales of way too much, way too soon, because for Rombeshki, the level of competition as a pro... 168, 54, and 3. He's the seven-time FEN lightweight defending champion. And he won the FEN lightweight belt by beating Marion Zielkowski, the now KSW lightweight champ. Like, yeah, Rebeski versus Omar Morales would have been a fun fight for his UFC debut because Morales is just well-rounded. He's going to test you in every single area of your game, but he's not really dangerous enough with that one-hit power, you know? So it's going to be a good matchup for both guys. And this is a really difficult matchup for Nick Fury. Again, like you had mentioned... He fights in that Joe Selecki manner. If he gets on top of you, it might not be the most aesthetically pleasing style, but Fury is a very dangerous fighter if you do leave a limb in the wrong spot. If you try to get up to your uh, feet and you go on all fours, he's going to get your back. Like, he does have all of the foundational skill sets you look for in a grappler. The problem is, I just think it's way too much, way too soon for him, and that's the problem. Against Rubeshki... I think on the feet, he's going to have a lot of trouble, especially in the boxing range. I think he's going to have a physicality trouble, too. I think the takedowns can be really difficult for him to come across. Are you are you kidding me? Why? He has a four-inch no, no, height advantage, and he's fought at welterweight. Fury's going to be the bigger fighter. No, here. no, you're right, but Rebeshki has this low center of gravity. He's a stocky fighter. He's going to be in under you. It's going to be difficult to get this guy to the mat consistently throughout 15 minutes, and I think Fury's not just going to have to go out there and get him with a submission. I think he's going to have to wrestle him for a long time. That's why I say that. I just think the wrestling is going to be difficult for him to go out there and really take advantage and of the matchup. for Rombeski, when you do watch him fight, he's a southpaw and he throws hammers. Are they the most technical punches you've ever seen in your entire They're life? Damaging. Not necessarily, but they are very damaging. And he does have wind to carry him through three rounds, let alone five rounds. And if you watch Rombeski fight, he's the perfect guy to switch a camp to American top team. So what did he do before this fight? Switch his camp to American top team. So Rombeski training with the best and brightest at 155 pounds. And for what it's worth, Tomasz Narkun there as well. But if you watch Rombeski's last fight, and he took on... Again, like I told you how good his record is and who he's fought, but his last time out, he took on Rodrigo Ledio, and we spent all of our Dana White's Contender Series breakdown talking about, well, Ledio's a one-hitter quitter knockout guy, throws from odd angles. What does Rombeshki do? In the first minute, walks across the cage and takes him down. And then Ledio gets back up, and Rombeshki goes across and takes him down again. Rombeshki could have fought a very, like, wild fight because Rombeshki was in the same spot that Jack Cartwright and Jake Hadley were in. Your regional champ, 
people know who you are. You shouldn't be fighting on Dana White's Contender Series. Exactly. Albert Dariah is another guy like that. But Rombeski took that shot. But instead of going out there and fighting like a wild balls-to-the-wall type of fight in front of Dana White, Rombeski scaled it back and fought a really smart fight. He gets Lidio down. And then he gets a rear naked choke with his body on top and his arm around him. I don't know if a I've ever seen position. a rear naked choke like that before. Like it, it was weird. Little, remember when Alexiolytic was like sideways on Travis Brown? That's the only other one I can think of because it was such a unique position. Because normally, if you have that shoulder free and you can get it to the mat, that's like how you escape a rear naked choke in the first place. So it just speaks to the level of squeeze this guy must have if he is able to get you in a vulnerable, so, a vulnerable position. Both guys very accomplished. Rombeski with his odd angle striking, his championship experience, the high level. Of competition he's faced in the past he has good wrestling offensively and he has good jiu-jitsu now nick fiori again brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt henzo gracie's new hampshire trains with such great fighters at uh what would you call it like lozans new england cartel everybody that he's with uh whether it's rob font calvin cater the list goes on and on and on but for fiori taking this fight on a few weeks notice it is kind of a tough hill to climb i'm gonna say over under topology votes as they are a surprise to us there to you i'm gonna say over under 95 percent rambeshki i'll say over it's, it's under. How about that? 11, uh, 1,011 total votes, 91% Rombeshki, 14% by decision, 14% by submission, 66% by knockout. For the 9% that have Fiori, 35% by knockout. Again, I think it's just too much too soon in a matchup like this. Fiori, it's been a small sample size. And the other thing that I have to say about Fiori, and I said, like, he hasn't really fought the greatest level of competition. Look at all of his fights. All first-round finishes as a pro. He hasn't gone, what to a decision in his career, except for a fight that he had in grappling at Kasai Pro 5. And I should mention, he was a 2021 Enigma BJJ Grand Opening Tournament winner is Nick Fiore. So I want to give all these fighters as much props as I can. But I just think, again, too much too soon in this one. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Both of us going with Poland's Matosz Rombeski to get the win. Let us know who you have in the matchup. Do you have Nick Fiore to shock the world in this fight? With some great fights on this card. Listen... Dan Ige's taking on Damon it's Jackson. It's an absolutely great matchup on this card. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fighting Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. In 21 combined fights, these two men have 21 combined knockouts. So if you're expecting Alexander Semen-like striking, you're not going to get any of that in this fight. Between a couple of guys that you never would have guessed were welterweights, we have the Abdul Razak Al-Hassan out of Ghana taking on Claudio Hebero out of Brazil. And for Hebero, if you do look at it, I mean, he was able to get to the top of the mountain with a couple of different promotions. Thunder Fight and then Future before he ended up with... Dana White's Contender Series, taking on Yvonne Valenzuela. And in that matchup, Valenzuela, the former Lux fight middleweight champ, I mean, he just looked completely lost. He had Sean Strickland giving him his flowers. He had Sean Strickland in his corner. And Matt, in that fight, Sean Strickland, you can hear say, Call cut it. off the cage, get ready for those big hooks, they're coming. And then as soon as he says that, he gets hit by the big hook and knocked out, and Herbero gets the win. Dana White was all over it, signing him. So he gets... A well-known commodity in Abdul Razak al Hassan UFC debut. I'm kind of surprised by the matchup, but at the same time... It's a good stage of his career to get him at. Habero's on a bit of a roll, and for al Hassan, he's 1-4 in his last five. Now, his last time out against Joaquin Buckley, whose rankings adjacent, al Hassan loses that one by split decision, but I mean, the first round was back and forth. You could give it either way. I gave it to Buckley. The second round was definitely Buckley's round. The third round was definitely al Hassan's round. So, people split on who won that fight, but for al Hassan. Kind of the narrative is 
He's going to go balls the wall in the first round, like his fight of the night and the comeback that he had against Munir Lazez. Exactly. But after that early storm, he will tend to tire. He's got some of the biggest legs you're going to find in MMA, like him, Devin Clark. There's a few others out there. But for Al-Hassan, his last fight out was his first fight with Elevation Fight Team and not with Fortis MMA. And maybe he had third-round cardio. Maybe Buckley got tired. Maybe they kind of fell into the position where Al-Hassan was on top for a large percentage of the third round. But the one thing I like is Al-Hassan kind of had a third round to remember in that fight. I'm, I think the first part of that, though, is more true than the second like part, if we're being honest, though. Because that's the thing. It's pretty difficult to teach an old dog new tricks at 37 years old. Abdul Razak Al-Hassan has won every single fight of his life by knockout. I don't think all of a sudden he's like, well, I'm training in the mountains. Let's not do that anymore. And against Claudio, it might give him a chance to kind of, you know, turn back the clock. Give him some of those kicking advantages that he hasn't necessarily had in some of those last few fights. Because for Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, that's what he is at his best. Yes, his hands have tremendous power, too, and he's able to land them, but when he's able to threaten with his kicks and then make guys walk into his hands, that's when his uh, striking game is really at its best. I don't want to bring this up. Sabah Hamasi, if you're watching this, you're probably going to want to turn this off. Bellator, great. And he has he's fighting oh, he's Irish great. Brennan Ward with Bellator in a few weeks. I can't wait for that fight. Abdul Razak Al-Hassan probably keeps that man up at night though they did the bs like hey uh it was an early stoppage the first yeah like hey you want to do it again like a month later and abdul was like yeah i would love to and he did look really good in those matchups but that is the problem if he's not able to start you with that one big storm he does leave a lot to be desired afterwards and i kind of joked about this before we started filming but it was true i was going back watching some abdul razak al-hassan fights because you know it's been a while i'm not keeping up on abdul razak al-hassan and i started to watch the jacob malkoon fight because i forgot kind of how it went and 45 seconds into it I'm like oh no this is the fight it was terrible I just wonder if Al Hassan is going to have any lasting power after he is able to expend himself because if Claudio does close the distance if he is able to make it more of a boxing fight than a kicking fight I think Al Hassan's going to really struggle with some of those ranges I have no idea what Claudio Hebero is going to be in the UFC and honest to goodness I didn't know what we were going to get on Dana White's contender series I knew about the hooks like Sean Strickland did and I knew how powerful he could be but then I went back and I started watching Claudio Hibero fights. And if you do look at it, I mean, he started in dance and then he went to boxing. Like, he's Mickey Rourke, like, just out there making Vasily the Lomachenko did that. Or Vasily Lomachenko. But that's how Hibero got involved in boxing, combat sports, and then, to a further extent, MMA. But I, I looked through all of this and I thought, okay, he keeps his hands at his chest and he doesn't really shell up defensively. He walks into guys... And he gets hit a lot. And then he likes to clinch up, but he has no plan once he clinches with any of his opponents. He's not good in the clinch. He doesn't throw knees. He doesn't throw punches. He then goes for his takedowns, but he doesn't have good takedown offense. He has bad takedown defense, oh, Claudio yeah. Hibero. If you watch his fights, his takedown defense is bad. Now, he does kind of have a good move to get his legs kind of outstretched as far as he can because he has a really big frame. Four inches uh, in reach in this matchup, three inches in height, and he does have that good first move. But once he gets taken down, he can struggle. Against Al Hassan, it's 50-50 whether he decides he's going to wrestle or he doesn't. It all depends. If you're a better wrestler, you're going to take him down. If he's a better wrestler, he'll take you down. He had success against Joaquin Buckley. Al Hassan could have success like that against Hebero. But the thing that scares me is... Hibero has really good movement on the feet, kind of like Michelle Pereira. He's a like, fluid mover. Yeah, he, he does dance through it. He moves his hands. He keeps his feet moving. His head doesn't move. Think about how electric a dance floor would be with Claudio and Johnny Walker. Hide your girl. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say, Matt. I mean, all I will say is that 
going back and watching Hebedo fights are really fun. And I'll throw it up there on screen because I went back and watched his last fight against uh, Albuquerque. And Albuquerque, you know, some Brazilian promotions, they don't go by your last name. They go by your nickname. So Claudio Hebedo versus Albuquerque. Matt, I'm going to bring my Shazam up on the screen. I'm going to show people my Shazam because I Shazam Claudio Hebedo's uh, fight song. And I'll go through some recent Shazams that I have so people can kind of get what I'm listening to. Mind Forever by Lord Huron. That's a pretty good song. Uh, Ian Noe's Pine Grove, Madhouse. That's a good song. The Dreams version by the Electric Peanut Butter uh, Transatlantic Psychedelics. Like, that's a really good Welcome song. the people who asked. I looked up this song, Matt, called No Pain, No Gain by For Profit. Before I looked at this, there was one. Now there's two, Matt. I was the only person that oh ever Shazam this song. You made history. How does that feel? Shazam history. <laughs> like, what? Are they going to send you something to the mail? Where did he find that song? He made it. Little do you know. No pain, no gain. Go check them out, I guess. But, uh, Matt, when it comes to this matchup, all this to say that both guys are strikers, both guys are finishers, both guys fight in completely different manners because Al Hassan will switch stances to throw hooks, but he's very, very dangerous early on. And Claudio Hebeiro kind of cut from the same cloth. Though I saw in his last fight before he fought in Contender Series a five-round atmosphere. He was able to go out there get taken down, but then have success later on in the matchup. I like Claudio in this fight against my better judgment, if I'm being completely honest. I just think with the combination of being the bigger athlete, and with this fight probably being contested at boxing range, because that's the thing about Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. Yes, he has good kicks, but he doesn't throw them in volume. He doesn't necessarily throw in combination either, so I think he's going to have a hard time keeping the fight at range. Now, if he is able to accomplish that, of course he can have success. Chop at the legs, go to the body, have that three-level attack. I just don't know what he's going to be able to do to keep the pressure of Hibero off of him throughout the fight so i think it could be a really fun fight again any fight that could end by knockout in the first second or third round is probably going to be a fun fight to watch but i do find myself siding with claudio al hassan has 11 first round knockout wins that's all of his wins that's claudio wild. has 10 wins all of them by knockout seven of them are in the first round i accidentally peaked Matt on topology at the votes i slid the mouse down but 1249 total votes 74 percent hibero 85 percent by knockout for the 26 percent that have abdul razak al hassan 78 percent by knockout I think Abdurazak al is going to get a win in the matchup, and everybody's going to tee and laugh at me in the comments section, but my reasoning is for Hebedo, when he throws that full extension on his kicks and on his punches, it's great, but when he gets in close, it's really bad, and I think that's where he's going to get caught by al -Hassan. So you think the distance is going to win it for al or for Hebedo? And I think the close nature can win it for Al Hassan, but either way, I, I assume somebody's going to get finished in this fight. Yeah, like, everybody hates MMA judging right now. This is a fight that cures that problem. We're not going to have to worry about it whatsoever. So I I'm really excited to watch this one again. Is the winner then going to fight Alex Pereira? Probably not, but it's going to be a great fight for as long as it lasts. Should be a great fight. I've also Shazam songs like uh, Texas Sun by Leon Bridges. Go check that one out, Came out Matt. like four years ago. Some big-time fights in the UFC's middleweight division. This is headlined by a couple of big-time middleweights and Nasruddin Yamavov and Kelvin Gaslam. Make sure you check out the videos here on the channel. Keep it locked in with Fight and Apex, we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into it. it. weight rankings are in play. Coming up this weekend, Umar Nurmagomedov putting up his number 11th ranked slot in the division and his undefeated record on the line when he takes on the former RFA featherweight champ, Howney Barcelos. And some would say, and they'd be a little bit cheeky, and they tell you that this is the matchup between a grappler and a Muay Thai artist. But listen, I had a little bit of fun with that because it's not totally so. If you watch Umar Nurmagomedov and his fighting style, he's a lot more 
Habib and Zabit than Zabit and Habib. You get my drift? He really mixes his martial arts well. And if you've only watched Nurmagomedov inside of the UFC's octagon, the only time you get to see him strike was in the third round against Nate Maness out of the three fights. Sergei Morozov taking him down. The fight that he had his next time out against Brian Keller... I'm going to take it down. The fight against Maine is round one, round two. He took it down. And for Hani Barcelos, you might look at him and think, man, this guy just bites down on mouthpieces till they're broken and he has to replace them. But when it comes to gum shields, I mean, listen, they stay in. He is a very good striker and a Muay Thai artist, but he's also a five-time Brazilian national wrestling champion. And he was on their national team a number of times. And for Barcelos, his dad really taught him the sport. His dad was a great wrestler. His dad's like a seventh degree coral belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so Barcelos has that jiu-jitsu background, his pedigree. Barcelos in his five on in, he does have the two losses. The one to Timur Valia by majority decision where he drops Valia twice in the second round. His fight against Victor Henry that was, was wild. And then his last time out, he looked great against Trevin Jones. And for Barcelos, he's got five knockdowns in eight UFC fights and he's six and two with the promotion. Barcelos' two-fight losing streak to me was like Laurie Markkinen last year. I sold all my stock. Goodbye. Like, I just, I wanted nothing to do with him anymore. But, Laurie Market has been able to turn it around. He looks pretty good. And for Howney, he got me back a little bit against Trevor Jones, but we kind of have to call ourselves out. We also have said on this very video, just earlier on, that Trevor Jones isn't a guy who always shows up at his peak capacity. And that was one of those fights where he didn't really look all that great. Let's just call it what it was. Like, yes, Howney won, and he, um... He looked amazing. His, he did look really good, but again, the opponent in front of him wasn't necessarily the highest level opponent. And now you're fighting Umar Nurmagomedov whose grappling is legitimately terrifying at 135. Well, the thing that weirds me out about this is, is everybody looks at Umar Nurmagomedov and they consider it, they're like, oh, you like the boy, well, tell me what you like about him. Like, I, I don't know if Can I want to go that far you would turn up little thought he ate and a wife about it. Like, I don't know what to make about Umar Nurmagomedov because there's so much fanfare and people don't necessarily focus on the things that we don't see as often, which, I mean, that only makes sense. But if you look at Nurmagomedov... each other with the things you want to The say. fight against Sidmar Anadio or the fight that he had against Saeed Yakub Kakrakmanov over with the PFL, I mean, Umar Nurmagomedov was able to turn it on with the striking. So I can't wait to see what we get out of this matchup because for Barcelos, in those eight UFC fights... He's been taken down once in his fight of the night against Kurt Holloway. He has 93% takedown defense in the UFC. All this to say, his background is wrestling, even though he's billed as a Muay Thai fighter. I can't wait to see what we get out of this. It should be a really fun fight, because like you said, Bartellos, if he is able to defend some of those takedowns, he should be able to take advantage of some of his skill set on the feet. But the thing is, Nomega Meadow's not an easy guy to yeah. crack. Like, he moves very well, because like you had mentioned, he's going to stand in a way that's going to throw a lot of kicks, feign a lot of kicks with his hips, go from long range into his takedown attempts. So I think it's going to be really difficult for Howney to find his own success on the feet, just because it is going to be difficult to damage Umar. So so this could be one of those fights where Umar Nurmagomedov gets four minutes of top control every single round, gets outstruck for like 45 seconds, and then everybody's up in arms about the decision afterwards. Just like for Nurmagomedov, I know Barcelos has really good takedown defense in the UFC. Umar Nurmagomedov's a different kind what? of beast when it comes to his wrestling. Like, how good is his takedown defense, guys? 93% in the UFC in eight fights. He's fourth all-time in bantamweight history and bottom time or bottom position time and bottom position percentage. And he's ninth all-time in bantamweight history in significant strikes landed per minute at 5.66. So, Barcelos dishes it out, keeps it on the feet so he can dish it out a little bit more. Whereas for Nurmagomedov, again, the craziest part about him is... 
those front leg prodding attacks. When he switches stances, he's like Stephen Wonderboy Thompson at the fact that he can throw to all three levels with his front leg and offer up the question mark kick that we have on the channel. Exactly. But that's a big Nurmagomedov attack. And his line for the three fights he's had in the UFC, 4.35 significant strikes landed per minute to 0.37 strikes absorbed per minute. Morozov landed seven. Kelleher landed one. And Manus landed two. And that was a three-round fight against Nate Manus. So Nurmagomedov not getting hit. Matt, we have a look at the topology votes. I don't expect them to be close. I feel like it's a slight to Barcelos. Nurmagomedov is a pretty big favorite. But I'm going to say over, under. I think there's some sensible people out there. I'll say over, under 85% Nurmagomedov. I think it's going to be over 93. That's going to break my heart. Oh, my God. 1,416 total votes, 94% Nurmagomedov, 62% by decision, 28% by submission. He's not going to submit him. For the 6% that have Barcelo, 63% by decision. Here's my pick, Matt, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Last year was the year of me picking underdogs, and it worked out pretty friggin' good on a lot of them. I want to pick County Barcelos to keep up with last year's trend, but I don't want to lose the crown and picking Umar Nurmagomedov in this one. Against my better judgment. I have no second guesses about Umar Nurmagomedov. I gotta I'm be honest. I think, I think Nurmagomedov wins this fight quite easily, to be honest. I think he's gonna use a lot of top control. I think he's gonna out-wrestle him. I Nobody's think be... done that to Barcelos. I know, but Barcelos hasn't looked as good his last three fights. Uh, he looked amazing of... his last time out. His last time out against a guy who we have both brought up on this very channel, on this very show, doesn't always look great. So I think a lot of those stats point to the earlier side of Howdy Barcelos' UFC tenure, and I just don't think he's that same guy at this stage of his career. I said this even in his prime. It would have been nice if he just started three years earlier, earlier because at 32, well, if he had only got started at 29, it would have given him a little bit more time. At 35, it is difficult to then go on a run after losing a couple fights, so I do like Umar Nurmagomedov in this one. Two knockdowns three fights ago against Valiev, 134 significant strikes against Victor Henry for Barcelos. Victor Henry Barcelos. was 35, and that was his debut. A big-time matchup coming up this weekend but both of us going with american kickboxing academy's own umar nurmega medov to get the win let us know down in the comment section who you have in this fight and for the rest of them keep that conversation flowing down there we got some big fights on this card including danny Ige versus damon jackson action jackson you're not going to want to miss that keep it locked in with fighting picks we always say let's get into it Fresh off two straight main event wins with no title shot. We have the second rank women's bantamweight, Ketlin Vieira, looking to make it another one. And she's won two in a row, taking on a fighter who's looking to go 5 0 in her last five fights. We have Raquel Pennington, the former title challenger. And for Pennington against Amanda Nunes, one of the more lopsided title fight losses that we've had. But she's continued to rebound throughout this career. And for Pennington, it's a steady Eddie approach. It's what we've known oh, yeah. since she was on the Ultimate Fighter season, what, 17 all those years ago. And for Pennington, walk forward, march you down, head in your chest, really just dirty box you up against the cage. And that's how Pennington wins the majority of these fights. And for Vieta, we kind of bring it back a little bit. You look at the five on in. She lost to Irene Aldana all those years ago. She beats Sajara Eubanks in a fight where she wins the first two rounds, then loses the third round in boxing quarters against a wrestler. That's not good. She goes out there and fights Yana Kunitskaya and control time doesn't do you any good. So she didn't win that one. Beats Misha Tate in a very close fight. Most scored at three rounds to two for Vieta. And then her last time out against Holly Holm, mostly everybody thought that she won. She ends up winning that one by split decision. Matt, on MMA decisions, 18 scored it for Holm, two scored it for Ketlin Vieta. And that's kind of why she's in this position. She fights two main events in a row. Here's your marquee chance to get that title opportunity. 
She kind of fought in a couple of duds, and now she's fighting her Cal Pennington. You know what fight's probably going to end in a split decision that no one's going to agree with? This fight. Uh, it is weird, because Kelly Vera, at one point in her career, I thought it kind of left Raquel Pennington in her dust. And I know that might seem harsh, but they just well, seemed like they were at very different stages in the division. The UFC was promoting Catlin quite heavily. Pennington, and let's just be honest, had lost to a lot of the top fighters at that point. Because the thing about Pennington is, there's not a lot of question marks about how she looks against ranked opposition in the weight class. She has fought everybody who was ranked well, in this weight class for the most part. Uh, so, I Well, I said the Ultimate Fighter 17 was actually the Ultimate Fighter 18, but she's... 11 and 5 in the UFC, and she had a performance bonus over Jessica Andrade that some people might forget about. That was 15 years ago, so they could all be forgiven for forgetting about that. But for Raquel Pennington, it's weird. If Joe Rogan was commentating this card, he'd talk about how good her submission game is, because he'd be like, remember that Ashley Evans Smith one? It's not that great. Like, you did describe it well. Raquel Pennington is a decision fighter, but a, a striking version of that. Like, you see a lot of kind of lay and pray, if you will, a lot of really good wrestlers. Raquel Pennington's gonna hold and be bold, I guess. That could be her new game plan. But I just think Ketlin's the more dangerous fighter. Like, if this ends inside the distance, Ketlin could get an arm triangle, probably trips her down to the ground, could threaten with some type of submission. We just haven't necessarily seen that version of Ketlin Beer for a while now. And it has been weird with her last two fights, like you said, getting ready for five-round fights. It might bring out a different version of her. Just going back to what she is more used to, maybe we will see a little bit more uptick in her aggression. Because when Ketlin's at her best, it's when she's going for a lot of takedowns. I don't like it when she's on the outside, kind of pitter-pattering, trying to box, because I think that's a position she'll struggle with against Pennington. The last time I, fought, I saw Ketlin Vieira fight with a bit of a mean streak was a fight against Irina Aldana. She went out there really mean, then she got caught by a check hook and she got knocked out. And so for Vieira, this recent stretch has been a little kind of eye-opening question. Well, now, Holly Holm, former champ. Misha Tate, former champ. I don't champ. think Pennington's going to L-step and crack her with the left No, hook. and that's true. But for Vieira, the, the opportunity was there in main events against former title challengers to get a title shot. I don't know what the, the chances are that she gets a title shot off a win over a Cal Pennington. I guess with Durandamy taking time off, with Juliana Pena wanting a trilogy. Yeah, like, dude, maybe do Pena versus Vieira? It's kind of a weird spot in this division's history so you do look at it i mean pennington it is kind of walk you down march you down corner you in the octagon and get the chance Just and steady. think about it this fight right here i think if this was contested in a big arena a t-mobile if it was in brazil if it was in colorado wherever it would favor vieta this one's actually at the apex so again we got to pay for that hundred million dollar facility somehow with fights like this this is how we have a look at the topology votes matt surprise to us they are to you i'm gonna say over under 70 percent with the younger fighter vieta here i think over even though i'll disagree but it is over so 1352 total votes 75 percent vieta 85 percent by decision for the 25 percent that i have pennington 89 percent by decision Matt, for Pennington, I mean, she was able to go out there. She looked really good her last time out. And obviously in this four-fight stretch, she's looked great. She beat Aspen Ladd. She beat Chasson by submission. She beat Kianzad. She beat Marion Renault. The closest out of all of those fights, I'd say, was probably the one that she had against Kianzad. Some people thought that Kianzad was on the winning end of that matchup. But in this fight, you think, yeah, it's going to be at distance. Vieta has success. If it's going to be in close quarters, Pennington has success. I think if it's in close, actually, Vieira's going to have success because I think she'll threaten a lot more with her takedowns. Now, Raquel Pennington's not an easy fighter to take down, so I don't just think Ketlin's going to march across Habib or above her head and slam her down. But on the mat, I definitely think Ketlin's the more dangerous fighter and definitely has the higher probability to get a stoppage that way. I know Pennington is not an amateur grappler by any means. You bring up the submission against Chasson. She looked great in that fight, and that was one where a lot of people wrote her off because maybe 
Stacy for the peaks and valleys of her career. A lot of people thought she was going to have a decided striking advantage in that matchup, but Pennington was able to do what she always does, get really grimy, make it an ugly fight, and look really good once it hit the mat. So I've really just been spinning my own tires right here, trying to think who I'm going to pick. I think if, if, if Vieta has Dede Pedroneras in her corner, and she has that Nova Uniao connection right there, Vieta can get willed into a win against somebody like Raquel Pennington in a matchup like this. The thing that I don't like is Pennington is a below average striker, but at the, at, not below average in terms of the numbers as to her output, but she has really, really good defense. She shells up great. She walks people down. Pennington doesn't get hit a lot in her fights. In terms of, you want to talk negative striker, Ketlin Vieta is a negative striker in terms of strikes landed per minute to absorb per minute. Ketlin Vieta will kind of give one to take one to close her own distance. So oh, yeah. you might like the, the defense out of Pennington. It is a really tough fight to try and get right down the line. I'm going to go with Vieta in the matchup, but if you took Pennington, I wouldn't be mad. I don't think it's going to be a great fight, to be completely honest with you guys. Like, I really did think Ketlin at one point was going to challenge Amanda Nunes and fight for the title. Like, it still I, could happen. It still could, exactly. Like you said, she's, what, 31 years old, so not an old fighter by any means. Hasn't taken a ton of damage. She's been stopped a couple of times, but like you said, could potentially get to that uh, spot. I just thought she would have done it by now. I also will pick Ketlin in this matchup, but it's a difficult one, because for Kel Pennington, if she defends the takedown, just pushes Ketlin up against the fence, like, there's not a lot Ketlin's going to be able to do from that range, so I'll agree with you in the Vieira pick. Both of us going with Nova Unyao's Ketlin Vieira to get the win in the matchup. Only a few fights left on this card. Some big time ones including Imovov versus Gaslam in that main event. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it. When you hang out with your friends and you watch this fight on Saturday night, you know what you're going to tell them? You're going to say, hey, somebody's 9-2 and two has to go. We have former Phenoms at Middleweight squaring off. Puna Soriano taking on the former AMC Fight Nights Global Middleweight champ, Roman Kopilov, a guy who looks incredibly young. He he, he, he grows the salad Holy out shit. into his fights. He just, yeah, he looks incredibly young. It would surprise you that he's 31. He's 1-2 in the UFC, but for Kopilov, an interesting last couple of fights. He loses to Carl Robertson in his UFC debut, gets submitted by a kickboxer. Then he takes on Albert Derive, drops him, but gets taken down and held down for majority of that fight. Then he takes on Alessio DiCirico in UFC or at UFC Paris and retires him. He looked amazing. Yeah, his really boxing good. combinations were there. He had speed and he had power in that fight. And that was the Kopilov that we had seen years ago capture that belt over there across the pond. And he's taking on a Puna Soriano that, and I mention it every time, but a D3 All-American at Wartburg. But this time I'm going to show a video because this guy had one cool hairdo when he was in university, a little bit of a blonde streak there. But for Soriano, we knew him for all of the wrestling. He had that wishy-washy fight in a co-main event against Nick Maximov where you might have thought that he won with some of his striking, but he lost out in the grappling. He loses before that to Brendan Allen, but his last time out against Dolce Lungiambula, all of a sudden, Puna just decided, I'm going to fight with a mean streak, and in the second round of that fight, when he lands that overhand left that drops Dolce, he got up, and I don't know if a man could could flex harder than he did he when he was up. hooping and hollering, but a giant win for Puna Soriano, and he kind of looked like he regained a lot of the confidence that he had kind of coming into the UFC off Dana White's Contender Series. Because when we bring up the wrestling, it almost does do a disservice to his striking acumen, because yes, he does have a good wrestling background, but when he lets his hands go, he is a devastating striker in this division, and the way that he can vary his shots and kind of threaten with some of the ducks that can be disguised as takedown attempts is very effective, and I think against a guy like Kopulov, those fakes are going to be really important to try to dry out some of the hands of Kopulov. Well, and who brought Mr. Puna Soriano into MMA in general? 
was Dan Ige, teammate, who's also on this exactly, card. Exactly, which tour. is always good to have friends and teammates on a same card as you. But for Puna, if we do see this recent version of him, I think he's got a great chance to make some noise in this division. And Kopulev's still in a weird spot, though, because like you had said, the two losses, they're very different, but they are still very important because they are so different. Like, we've seen him get kind of wobbled by Robertson. Robertson is a good striker, and then, of course, ultimately submitted. And the fact that we've seen him get hurt and stopped and then out-wrestled is a little bit concerning, because now we know that both of those avenues are out there. Both those avenues are ones that Puna Soriano could definitely take advantage of. I do worry though with Soriano, some of those shots that he throws on the feet are wide looping strikes. And if he gets overconfident with some of those big hooks and big overhands, yes, they're great if they land. If they don't land though, you're whipping in a lot of air, which is going to do two things, open up counter shots and make you very tired. And if that is the case, I could see Kapilov using some of his tighter boxing combinations to have success as this fight continues. I just think he's going to have to really be attentive early on in this match matchup because if he's just moving out of the way of big bombs constantly, Puna, if he just keeps on learning from each one of those misses, he may be able to land one of those shots. I mean, this is a really tricky fight because I can see a lot of people being down on Kopilov after after those first two fights that he had in the UFC. It was kind of like a blood and guts fight against Duraev where there was a chance that Kopilov could win that, could kind of stage a comeback and you know Duraev, every time he gets hit in the left side of his face, his eyeball just puffs up. But if you do look at it in his fight against Alessio DiCirico, he looked great and you look at DiCirico's face at the end of that one it's completely just swollen up and then of course he retired after the fact and he owns a gym in Rome so he should be fine is Manzo DiCirico but for Kopilov we just need to see a little bit more same can be said against uh, or about Puna Soriano rather but a little bit of a clash of styles I think if Puna leaves himself out there to get hit he can get hit and countered by those boxing combinations and the speed of Kopilov Soriano isn't a giant kicker but I think he can make them count in a fight like this and so we'll see how team ratty's own responds in copyleft we have a look at the topology votes matt surprise to us there to you one's a fan favorite that happens to speak english and that's the majority of the people that watch our videos matt i'm gonna say over under 80 percent soriano in this fight uh i'll say under but it'll be favored Son of a gun. 80% out of 1,322 total votes have Soriano. 18% by decision, 75% by knockout. For the 20% that have Kopilov, 46% by decision, 38% by knockout. I'm surprised there's that many that think this fight's going to end by knockout. Uh... No, they're both very heavy-handed strikers, especially for the division, and when they get momentum, it is really difficult to stop them. The thing about Pudaheli Soriano, though, that I do like, even in his losses, he didn't look that bad. Like, he hurt Brennan Alley, he just got out-wrestled by him in a lot of that fight. And it was one of those, like, Nate Diaz, I didn't lose, I just ran out of time things, because, like, Soriano, for being yeah. a big power puncher, can still carry his power late. He's not a guy who's gonna look exhausted there in the third round, hands on his hips, so I like Puna in this matchup, and I think this is gonna be a really fun fight. I have Soriano, but guys, go back, and as as I did like before Kopilov's fight with DiCirico that's as low as a guy's stock's gonna be so I really had to go back and watch a lot of those fight nights global fights and then I thought hey okay this Kopilov guy he's pretty good and he also has really good takedown defense if you go back and you watch a lot of those fights so we'll see how that's able to play out for Kopilov I do like Puna Soriano I think he has that wrestling advantage and usually when it's an MMA fight the grappler over the striker if they have a big grappling advantage and I think Soriano has it so I'm going Soriano Matt's going Soriano but really eager to hear people's thoughts on this one because I can't wait to hear from you in the comment section on this fight specifically and then on top of this you have Ige versus Jackson and the main event of Emo versus Gaslam. It's a very, very interesting weekend coming up. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. 
this weekend, 50K Dan Ige's taking on Carl Weathers. And action is on the way. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's in a matchup for the ages, Matt. These guys are absolute studs at 145 pounds. And it just so happens that Dan Ige is looking to hold on to the ranking that he has, even though he's on a three-fight skid, taking on a surging Damon Jackson. And for Jackson, his first time in the UFC was not all that good. There was a loss, a no contest, and a draw. And then he has to kind of pick up the PC. He fights with Legacy, LFA, he fights with the PFL, and he ends up back in the UFC, and he's not favored to beat Mursad Bektic. But oh my gosh, did he ever have a Hail Mary win in that matchup? And he's parlayed that forward to going 5-1 and one since he returned to the UFC in 2020. His last time out, Damon Jackson going out there, taking on Pat Sabatini. Sabatini favored to win that fight, marches forward, Jackson lands a short shot that wobbles him, and then he just decides, listen, I'm like Chris Nyland, in the 80s against Jay Miller and I'm going to just start feeding him the uppercuts. Lit him Sabatini up. drops like a sack of potatoes and Jackson, the best part about that finish, gets the back, locks down the hooks and then he's landing ground and pound and Sabatini can't get out. Referee is forced to stop the fight and it just so happened that Jackson's brother passed away a week before that fight. So really emotional scenes but Matt, to get back to it, he always used to be the leech and now all of a sudden action he's actually way better. Now he's action and he's got two big black stripes of tattoos on his back. He's a new man. He really is. His hair even looks fuller. I'm going to learn from my own mistakes on the last card that we did in the co-main event. And I think you know where I'm going with this. I picked Julian Arosa to beat Alex Caceres for these reasons. Arosa was a guy who had had some shortcomings, but was on a really good run of his career. And the thing about Alex Caceres is you kind of know what you know about him, right? He's fought everybody in the division. So, uh, but the Pick thing underdogs, was, though. go ahead for Alex Caceres, he was able to really use the, all of the knowledge that he had, all the experience that he had and put on a great performance. I look at this fight to be very similar as that other co-main event. Now, Caceres throws a much more varied attack than a guy like Dan Ige, but Dan Ige, I would say, has a specialization that Alex Caceres doesn't necessarily have. Dan Ige is a very good boxer and a very heavy-handed boxer and he's able to land his own counter shots. So there's a very large part of me that goes, hey. Could David Jackson kind of become that fighter that he's starting to morph into, the action Jackson, to where he can hurt you on the feet, submit you on the mat, take a beating, and just keep on ticking? I just don't know if that's going to work against a guy like Dan Ige, though, because I was a big Pat Sabatini guy. I thought he was going to have a very promising future. He still could. And he still could, don't get me wrong, but we have seen him get hurt on the feet in a few of his fights, and that was always an area that he has some question marks about. Dan Ige's been hurt before. He's been in tough fights before. I've seen this guy get hit by fight-ending shots in every single one of his fights. He takes, like, one step backwards and seems to be all right after. Like... If you get into a firefight-type fight with a guy like Danny Gay, that's when you are really going to struggle. Now, the Mobster Evloyev fight was the first performance where that wasn't really how he had lost. He went out there, got out grappled, got out jabbed on the feet too, and that wasn't something that I... That was definitely not something I thought we were going to see in that fight. But again, with Danny Gay, I think you do have to consider just the strength of schedule that he has had. You can't look at his record and go, wow, he's 15-6, and six. how good could the guy be? Because he has only fought some of the best fighters in the UFC ever since he made his debut. And that's the weird thing. We threw it out there to you in the YouTube community poll, 38% voted that this is their fight of the night between Ige and Jackson but the weird part about this is for Dan Ige and you set it up really well like he went on that crazy win streak after he dropped his debut to Julio Arce. He beat Mike Santiago, Jordan Griffin, Danny Henry, Kevin Aguilar, Mursad Betic and Edson Barboza and Barboza was a fight that most people thought that Edson won that fight so Ige gets a main event against Calvin Cater 
And got beat pretty well pillar to post. He did. And the volume was a really big problem for him. Now, like Cater did after he got beat pillar to post by Holloway, Cater comes back and fights Giga Chikadze, and then he mops him. And what happens to Dan Ige? Fights Gavin Tucker, who's on a run, and he lands like a short right cross, and Gavin Tucker, sack of bricks, go back to Canada and don't fight again. Now, I like Gavin Tucker, and we've seen him at some of the events. He had a tough combined record of opponents. Seen him at FLA, but again, a good win for Dan Ige. But his last three losses... Chan Sung Jung, Josh Emmett, Mavzar Evlaev. Chan Sung Jung. Well, the Korean Zombie beat him in every aspect of MMA. Outgrappled him and outstruck him. And then had a title shot off of that win. The Josh Emmett fight is a loss on the page. Go back and watch it. First round, Iggy gets dropped in the first minute by a right hand. And then he clears the cobwebs and he gets on top. How? And he, has, he has a good first. I don't know. I just mean, like, that was one of the cleanest non-knockout shots you're ever going to see. Like, a full overhand from Josh yeah. Emmett. Did he get goes down like the fight's over? 30 seconds later, this guy is up like nothing yeah, ever and, happened. and he ends up on top. It's a competitive first round, but the knockdown, Emmett wins it. The second round controversial whatever but Danny Gay made a really good he account did. of himself even though that says unanimous decision loss that could have gone either I way he got fighting for a title and then against Mavzar Evelyn he got mopped on the ground so for Damon Jackson he is great with his takedowns the other thing about Jackson is you mentioned it tough as a two dollar stake go watch his fight that he had against Charles Rosa where he's leaking blood and they don't end the fight and he ends up getting the win in that one the four wins that he has in a row right now Charles Rosa Camuela Kirk by submission who I thought had a great chance Dan Argetta and then Pat Sabatini a big step up for Jackson against the Dan Ige that's kind of faltering a little bit right now so we threw it out there to you guys in a community poll out there on YouTube we wanted your thoughts on this one 60% voted with Dan Ige 40% with Damon Jackson good in the, split there though in the comments uh Christian says 50k versus Action Jackson favorite matchup on the card level competition isn't the best metric for predicting fights but Ige's three fight losing streaks consisted of and then he goes on to talk about it Bill is saying keep putting Damon Jackson as an underdog Josh Joshua, give me Axon Jackson by close decision. Angel, around hell with the pineapple. I don't like Jackson, but he's going to win. So the commenters are fresh on Damon Jackson, but the, the community's going with Dan Ige in this matchup. And style for style, Jackson, he's going to throw unorthodox strikes, like oh, yeah. we said. He's going to get hit a little bit on the feet. Dan Ige, though... He's got to be all the way in or all the way out. He's struggled with that in some of these recent fights. He has, but I think all the way in, he will have success against Damon Jackson. I know that might seem odd because Jackson did just come off a TKO against Pat Sabatini. Danny Gay's chin is made of what, like, Drew Dober's chin is made from. Like, you really got to hit this guy hard to put him down. And I don't think Jackson has that ability. I think, again, Jackson, it all seems lined up for him to win this fight. He's had a great run of his career. Danny Gay seems to be kind of on his way out of the rankings. I just think Danny Gay has good enough takedown defense to keep this fight on the feet. And I do think that if Jackson fights in the pocket, he will need some of those bigger counter shots. And I do favor Danny Gay for those reasons. Numbers-wise, Danny Gay in the UFC, and he's had a lot of fights, uh, is 51% on Danny White's contender series in UFC combined. That's 13 fights, 51% takedown defense for Dan Ige. Chunks are taken out in certain ones of these fights. I mean, Korean Zombie got three. Mazar Evlaev got nine. He went nine of 16 on takedown attempts in that fight. So, yeah, it's going to get chipped away. To me, I like the boxing combinations, the speed. I like the time away for Dan Ige after his last fight. But 
I really do like the fact that he can get in and out of the pocket. If he stays in there at all and leaves his chin out there, Damon Jackson is the type of guy that's going to take it home to Fortis MMA. I love what Jackson's brought together in this fight, and I have a hard time picking against Jackson, but against maybe my better judgment. I'm taking Ige here as well. I just got to learn from my past mistakes. I picked Julia Rosa. That did not work out for me whatsoever. This should be a great fight, though. Again, yeah. you have a guy who seems to be potentially on his way out of the rankings against a surging prospect who nobody ever thought would be in the position that he's currently at. He's completely reinvented himself. This is the fight that everybody can get excited for. Matt, it is a great fight coming up this weekend. Both of us going with... 50k Dan Ige to get the win. We know you're going to let us know, but please do down below in the comments section who you have in this fight and the rest. The main event is left. Nasruddin Imovov is taking on Kelvin Gaslam. It should be a great fight to end a big week of fights. We can't wait for it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it. Nasruddin Imovov getting set for his first five-round main event of his entire career. The former welterweight taking on the former welterweight, Calvin Gaslam. Oh, wait. Monday night. And we film our videos. We did it on Saturday. Monday night across the wire, 5.45 p.m. Eastern. Brett Okamoto tweets from ESPN that Gaslam is out, Matt, due to a mouth injury. So his mouth couldn't cash those checks. And all of a sudden, we have a guy that... Definitely likes to, to jibber-jabber and jibber-jab inside of the octagon. Sean Strickland. So this is a very interesting fight because it's still five rounds, but it's at light heavyweight. It's not at middleweight. That's an interesting connotation. If you go through Sean Strickland's overall biography, he started at welterweight. He was a king of the cage middleweight champ. He defended that title five times before he came to the UFC. And now he's moving and growing at 185 pounds with the promotion. Now he was at 170 for a while. He got put on a poster by Elise Zaleski de Santos. But we know him for the four main events that he's had since he's moved up to 185 pounds. This will be his fourth. He fought Uriah Hall. That was a really good win. He fought Jack Hermanson. That was a win. And then he fought his last time out, Jared Cannonier, almost a month ago. So a really nice short notice turn for Sean Strickland. But Matt, we're handed off to you. Sean Strickland two days ago was posting on his Instagram that he wrecked his dirt bike in a bunch of bushes. And now all of a sudden he's going to fight. So how surprised are you about the fact that we do have Sean Strickland? Now all of a sudden, Imavov going from the red corner to the blue corner, and he's actually fighting up the rankings, taking on the number seven Strickland. He was originally due the number 13 Gasolin. How fast did Nasruddin Imavov sign this contract? Like, this is a pretty good opportunity for him because here's the thing. I think we both admit it going into that Kelvin Gaslam fight that, hey, Kelvin Gaslam has very obvious strengths and weaknesses that Imavov is going to struggle with. He has the gas tank that, you know, there are those question marks surrounding Nasruddin with. And Sean Strickland does have a lot of those same components. The difference is, like you just said, Kelvin Gaslam, for the better part of the last two months, has hopefully been getting ready for this here main event. Whereas Sean Strickland was getting ready for another fight. So hopefully that there is a little bit of carryover in between fights because sometimes we do see that. And that's the thing. I don't want to just say, oh, it's a negative. Oh, it's a negative. He's doing this on short notice because it's not like he'd probably get completely out of shape in only a month, you know? And he's probably on the UFC short call list for, hey, I'm always pretty ready. I can always be ready around these weight classes. And this really is kind of a Kevin Holland opportunity because they're doing it up a weight class. It's going to have connotations on the rankings, but like, is it really going to matter in the grand scheme things so i think it's gonna be a fun fight to put together but i'll be completely honest with you i think the move up to 205 is gonna favor nasruddin imovov a little bit more than it will sean strickland and maybe we will disagree on this i just think for imovov 
He's a little bit thicker. And I think that's going to matter with regards to 205 because physically, I think they're both going to look somewhat similar. I just think Imovov is going to be slightly more filled out. I could be wrong by the time we get to fight night. I will just be curious though, if Sean Strickland does have the good cardio, if he does have the good output that we have seen in some of his past main events, then this could be a really difficult fight for Imovov. But here's the thing. And I know I picked Cannoneer to beat Sean Strickland. I was not impressed with either guy in that main event. Like neither guy in that fight really gained stock in my eyes. I know Cannon is trying to get a title shot or at least a number one contenders type fight off that but like dude you barely outpointed sean strickland like yes you landed some of the more damaging strikes i would say but strickland was still in there landing his peppering shots so i just think the obvious strengths and weaknesses are there for both guys sean strickland has to watch out for the big punch and nasty Nemovov has to really worry about his gas tank in this one well and that's the big thing when it comes down to this fight in full transparency we're three hours removed from this fight being announced so when i went back and tried to really do a little bit more advanced tape study because let's face it i mean sean strickland just fought jared cannonier we just saw that fight and for Imovov, he's getting ready for Gaslam. What does Gaslam do? Well, he's a southpaw who also happened to move up from 170 to 185, like both of these guys. And Gaslam will throw that lead hand as a jab, as an uppercut. What does Nasruddin Imovov do? He strikes very well from distance, and he does a good job moving in and out. Sometimes Gaslam can get caught in the mirror to where I'm all the way in, I'm all the way out. I don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, he's starting to get hit with a lot of those hooks. And for Gaslam, for what it's worth, he does defend head kicks very well but he gets hit by a lot of head kicks because he is a shorter guy at 185 pounds. And you look at it for Imovov, he will throw the occasional head kick. You look at Imovov though, the most leg kicks he's thrown in his UFC tenure was five against Jordan Williams. And you might think, well, okay, to beat Sean Strick, when we saw Jared Cannonier not throw a ton of leg kicks, but the ones that he threw, he made them count, right? And we know Sean Strickland, he's the type of guy that actually does check leg kicks every now and again but for what it's worth for strickland matt i went back through and just did a numerical analysis on the three main events that he's had so against uriah hall 186 significant strikes against jack hermanson 153 and against jerry cannonier 152 how many leg kicks do you think sean strickland threw in those fights add them up maybe five he threw three against hall he threw four against Hermanson. He threw two against Cannoneer that landed. So for Strickland, we've also seen the same propensity by Nasruddin Imovov. He doesn't handle leg kicks well at all. We saw that in the fight against Ian Heinish. We saw that a little bit against Joaquin Buckley. But he doesn't have to worry about that with Strickland. And that's something that can really limit his movement. This was my big concern when he was fighting Kelvin Gaslam. It's, hey, I know Kelvin Gaslam might not be the guy that he used to be. He's not necessarily an old fighter. He's just been in a lot of really crazy fights at this stage of his career. But he's still insanely durable. Like, he can eat a lot of big shots and still look strong in the fourth and fifth round. This isn't a knock on Sean Strickland, but like, I don't think he's nearly as durable as Kelvin Gaslam is, especially not at 185 and probably not at 205 either. And that's the thing. I will be curious to see if both guys will just be able to take a tremendous shot at 205. Like if neither guy's cutting that much weight, I still think Imovov is going to be the much heavy handed or heavy or handed guy in this matchup because we have seen Strickland get caught, get stunned, get hurt before at this weight class. And that was my big concern in the Gaslam matchup was, hey, if he hurts him early and Gaslam's able to weather that big storm, then maybe Gaslam could take over as the fight continues. And you bring up a lot of those significant strike numbers for Sean Strickland. And I know we're going to disagree on this, but other than Cannoneer. I would say Jack Hermanson's not at the best stage of his career, and Uriah Hall is not even in the UFC anymore. Like, yeah, but he I mean, whoa, 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 whoa. Hermanson, too. 
Hermanson went out there and put on a great performance against Chris Curtis right after that. Not long after no, that. We, so, Craig, that wasn't a great performance. Everyone booed. That was it, a terrible fight. It was it was a great bounce back. But when you do consider it and you do look at both of these guys, here's the big thing. And and I'll kind of kind of pick up your point here. And I know a lot of people are going to talk about this. This is my big note about this fight. It's about the big shots and it's about the noise. Which one wins out? And it all depends on what judge is sitting in that uh, in that chair throughout five rounds to make the decision. I have no idea what MMA judging is going to look like in 2023. It seemed like at the end of 2022, you had some people that kind of favored control time and volume over the damaging shots. And that was definitely a, a really tough look. And that's why we opened up our video at the start of the week saying, hey, you know, the state of MMA is in a weird spot. We got to try and punch up and be positive. And if we're trying to be positive about this one, Sean Strickland, you assume that the gas tank is going to be there for five rounds. It's held up through these three fights. It's held up in his other fights that were three rounders at middle. He was on a motorbike two days ago. He didn't know he was fighting. I'm sure you have to edit together drone footage and it takes a couple of days. No, no, but, but my point is, you said it yourself. He wasn't in camp. Like one guy well, was getting ready for a fight. I'm this week, sure he was going wasn't. to the gym and he was actually doing some work. And he's one of the harder sparring guys out there, whether that's a good thing or it's not. But my, the big point about this one, Sean Strickland and his fight against Jerry Cannonier, whether you thought he won, whether you thought he lost, the votes were split on MMA decisions. It was 13 to, to seven for Cannonier. Strickland was minus 110 in that fight against Cannonier. In this fight coming up that was supposed to be this weekend, Imavov was about a two-to-one favorite going up against Gaslam. So we're not going to be able to see Oz for this one because, again, we're we're three hours away uh, or removed from the fight announced. But, but I did throw it out there on our YouTube community tab. And Matt, people have shown up already. Already two hours in, 262 total votes, 54% going with Strickland, 46% going Imavov. Matthew Moore saying this is a little more interesting now. Artem MMA is a little bit down on Gaslam. And Mr. Face is pretty down on Gaslam as well. So the votes are ever so slightly on Sean Strickland over Nasuddin Imavov. But I will say this because I haven't really talked about Imavov. You touched on, or we, we both talked about Calvin Gaslam and his fight style. With Imavov, he can pump that jab out there from a couple of different angles. And he also throws his left hand as a shovel hook every now and again, as well as just your standard everyday hook. Those differences and those problems caused issues for Jordan Williams. They caused issues for Heinish for sure. And when it came to Shabazian, it was really that added kind of wrinkle of his grappling that was able to win out in that fight and defending his takedowns. We saw it in the fight against Buckley that he struggled, especially in round three, and the commentators really harped on it. But he was going for lazy shots himself. He was looking up at the clock. His hands came down tremendously. And Imovov is not a guy that holds a, a really high guard. He holds his hands at chest height to throw those odd angle punches. So I'm really eager to see what we get out of Imovov. His defense from range is much better. Strikes absorbed per minute, 2.43 to Sean Strickland's 4.18. That's a huge number. He doesn't take a ton of punishment in his fights. And even in his one loss in the UFC to Phil Haas, he was just out wrestled and out grappled in that majority decision win. So again, I think we've laid it out for both of these guys, but I'm eager to really get the nuts and bolts of your thoughts on this one. I've got Imovov, if I'm being completely honest. This is my issue that I do have with Sean Strickland and his fighting st style, especially in this matchup. The one thing that Imovov does have a significant advantage over Sean Strickland is, is his lateral footwork and his footwork forward and backwards. And I think Sean Strickland's going to find himself reaching a lot to try to land from point A to point B. And yes, he does throw a lot of volume together, but I think that might turn out to be a bit of a double-edged sword. I brought this up a lot when Aljamain Sterling was fighting Piotr Giannis. Hey, when you're a guy who throws a lot against a guy who's a really talented counter-striker, sometimes it's not great to give away 
a lot of your looks, especially early. And I know Jared Cannonier is the type of guy who can really make you pay for being out of position. But again, I wasn't impressed by either guy in that fight. And I do think Imovov is going to be able to counter a little bit more effectively off the back foot if Sean Strickland does find himself reaching for some of those combinations. But again, I do think that as this fight continues, it should start to favor Sean Strickland. I just think he's going to eat some of those bigger shots early on in the and, fight. And I think those will tell the story. Yeah, and that's the big thing for Sean Strickland. We've almost seen him, you know, even before the Pereira fight where he just kind of hangs in the pocket that extra half second. We saw Jared Cannonier was able to capitalize on some of those shots. And again, depending on how you scored that fight, it's still a loss on his record. But now all of a sudden, he gets to kind of leapfrog Cannonier in everybody's minds to start this year. And listen, the year starter cards, I mean, from the first ESPN card, which was Dillashaw, Cejudo, to what we've had, Cater versus Chikadze last year, they're usually pretty big cards, and they usually leave a pretty big impact with MMA fans. I do have Strickland ever so slightly. I like the control rate just a little bit more in the majority of his fights. But like I said, I like the volume round three, round four, round five. I think he can start to kind of pull away a little bit, even if we have question marks about was he in camp? How dedicated was he? And what's the weight cut going to look for like for both these former welterweights now at 205 pounds. But I absolutely love the fight. And Matt, the fact that we're doing this one so early on in the week, you'll know if there's any more changes here, you can definitely check us out at fight name picks, Instagram also on Twitter as well, but here on the YouTube channel. So with that, Matt, we leave you. We've had a great time breaking down all of these fights. Make sure you check out uh, Damon Jackson versus Dan Ige. That's a really fun one. I mean, the UFC signing so many different fighters, adding to the roster. We've lost Mike Jackson from the roster, so spell one out for your boy because Mike Jackson's no longer a UFC fighter. But we have a big time week planned for Fight Night Picks. Again, two hours before the prelims, you can check us out with question mark kicks. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. And as we always say, Let's get into it. Let's get into 